You're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door. WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy episode 412. Listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show, the view from our side of the cockpit door, with your host Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG Headquarters in Roswell, Georgia. Today's show is recorded on the 13th of February, 2020. Today's episode, a passenger jet landing in Istanbul breaks into pieces after hitting a wall. 747 strikes a trash bin while trying to take off at LAX. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, the things on your wings. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 412 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. It's an aviation podcast where we cover the latest in aviation news and answer your feedback. And I'm Captain Jeff, former U.S. Air Force pilot and currently a captain for a major legacy airline based in Atlanta, Georgia, which I like to call Acme Airlines. And joining me from her lakeside home in the Carolinas, doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Steph. Hey, Captain Jeff. It is great to be here for another show. Five years in and still enjoying every moment of it. Five years, five years. That's awesome. Yeah, we'll have to do something special for the sixth year anniversary since we missed the fifth. Since we missed the fifth. (laughs) Whoopsie. Oh, well. (laughs) It's the thought that counts. Uh, We didn't have any thought. Oh. Oh, well. Uh, also joining us from his studio in the English countryside in Hampshire, uh, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, retired captain for an international airline based in London. It's Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Lovely to be back on the show. Five minutes in and I'm already bored. Oh, okay. Well, <laughs> you know, we have ways of dealing with that. Uh-oh. <laughs> and from... The Northwest Atlanta suburbs, barbecue master, motorcycle rider, pleasure boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, it's Captain Dana. Well, hello, guys. How are you? Great to see you and not very good to be seen. And uh, looking forward to another not-so-exciting episode of APG. <laughs> I'm thinking, why even do this show? This is, I, I know, all, right? I, crazy. I seem like a downer of some introductions there. I know. That's very, very negative. I thought so. I kicked things off pretty well. And I think you just... did. It was very positive. Then, uh, well, we, Nick, had, we had to keep everything in balance. Nick ruined it. Uh, well, you know what? Why don't we go to the news? Maybe we'll find something positive to talk about. Probably not. Are you oh, sure yeah, about that? like that's going <laughs> to <No>. happen. <laughs> well, you never know. We'll spin Stand it. By for news. We'll spin it in a positive way. <laughs> oh, look, I've run off the runway. Whee! <laughs> Oh, 
All right. The first item in our news folder, a accident, Pegasus B738, which is a 737-800 at Istanbul on the 5th of February, 2020, overran the runway, impacted a wall, and broke up into three pieces. And let me read from the Aviation Herald, Simon Radke's wonderful website. Uh, they were performing flight 2193 from Izmir to Istanbul with 177 passengers and six crew. They landed on Sabia Gokens runway six at 620 uh, p.m., but overran the end of the runway, impacted the airport perimeter wall, and broke into three parts about 170 meters, which is 550 feet past the runway end. An engine that had separated caught fire. Um, there were, um, I think they said, one, let's see, three passengers died. 179 people were taken to hospitals with injuries. Now, how many did they, did they say were total on the airport? 177 passengers, six crew. Okay, that's uh, 183. Correct. Three people died. That leaves yeah. 180 and 179. Were, so one person. <laughs> Un, unsure. Yeah, didn't go to the hospital. It was a wow. terrible accident. Yes, Yeah. Nick? Yep. Yeah, terrible. Um, they, uh, let's see. So how do we set it up? They were coming in to land at this airport and um, they uh, were vectored around. There was a, a frontal system going through or a, a thunderstorm um, mega, what do you call those things? Mega cells? No. Um, I can't think of the name. Sounds like a technical meteorological Yeah, like a meteorological term. term mega or um, something. Cell. A thunderstorm? Yeah, thunderstorm uh -huh. system. And they were um, repositioned. line? Because that's what it looks like. Yeah, it kind of looked like a uh, In uh, the show notes, you'll see the, there's a video here that uh, uh, has the radar returns compiled and the, tr uh, the track of the aircraft. And so they uh, kind of fly around a little bit and then come in and basically uh, try to land right when I think the worst part of the storm was going right yep. over the top of the field. It was a, develop, a rapidly developing thunderstorm moving over the airfield. That's from weather scientist Sat Weather Aviation. And uh, if you want to watch that video, it uh, will be in the show notes. Um, so at the time, the uh, the METAR at the time that they landed was uh, two nine. The winds were two nine zero, twenty two, gusting thirty seven knots. And uh, oh, I should mention that they were setting up for runway six. So, uh, and it wasn't long before, I think when they were coming in, they were being vectored for their arrival. They were operating on runway six because the winds favored runway six. I think they were, uh, the winds were out of, uh, the east and then pretty rapidly the, uh, because of the passage of the thunderstorm system, everything kind of shifted around the other direction. So the winds were predominantly out of the west. And, uh, the thing that really raised my eyebrows, and I'm sure everybody else's that read this. Uh, at the time they were actually landing, the winds were gusting to 37 knots. That's one heck of a tailwind. And so it's not a surprise that they didn't land uh, in the touchdown zone. In fact, they landed um, basically in the touchdown zone if you were landing in the opposite direction, uh, which is not good. The, the last third of the runway, I mean, maybe, where they touched down and they were very, very fast and uh, instead, so they should have gone around and they didn't, and they went off the end of the runway and there, there's some, um, video, uh, surveillance camera video that is just horrifying to watch <laughs> the, the latter part of, I shouldn't laugh, the latter part of the, uh, 
takeoff or the uh, landing roll where they, um, and you can see some, I guess the, uh, one of the engines on fire. I think that's what, what the flames are coming from. I can't really tell for sure, but they ended up, uh, going off the end of the runway and at the end of the runway, it's just, it just drops off, uh, like a 60 degree, uh, slope at the uh, end of the runway and it goes down and toward where uh, a busy, a busy highway is. And, uh, it's just, it's just frightening to, to watch this video. And I'm amazed that everybody didn't die on that, uh, on that overrun. Yeah. It had the potential, didn't it, Jeff? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Just an awful decision to continue with that landing. I'm, I'm still scratching my head trying to work out. It wouldn't have taken them 10 minutes to have uh, swung the airfield around and uh, moved on to the other air, uh, runway. Why on earth didn't they just to say, no, thanks. We'll wait till you move the airfield and we'll, you just start positioning us for zero six, please. So this might be a good time to talk about situations that we're exposed to as professional airline. Well, not just professional airline pilots, but all pilots out there, uh, pilots in command. You're in a situation where the weather is not optimum and things are changing rapidly. And what is it about our human nature that keeps us going? Keep You know, we kind of get set in a certain, this is what we're going to do. And Come hell or high water, I'm going to keep doing it, and and it's hard to talk ourselves out of saying, "Wait a minute, this is dangerous. This doesn't make sense. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to go ahead and stop this approach, and I'm going to go around, and we're going to talk about what we're going to do next." I think there's a lot of things that contribute to that. Sometimes um, a lot, some of it we've talked about before. Um, there's kind of this mindset that you know when you're coming in for an approach and landing, that your the end goal is the landing. Right. The end goal isn't a go around, um, but there's been I know a lot of work at some airlines to, you know, the expectation now is that the landing is an option and go around is equally valid option. And you don't make that decision until everything lines up just right. Um, There's uh, a confidence factor where, uh, you know, if you've been in similar conditions or maybe not quite as bad conditions before or you're not. able to read the conditions well enough that you may have a false sense of confidence that it's going to work out just fine. Um, so I think there's a lot of different human factors, uh, things here that would have led them to continue when it was not a good idea. Oh, funny you should mention it, Jeff. This Just this past week, going into uh, this very small city called Atlanta, <laughs> landing on 2-6 uh, right, Tower called out the winds. Uh, you know, they're shooting IELS PRMs into Atlanta. And I heard the winds, and I pulled out my trusty crosswind calculator, and I said, hmm, I wonder. The winds were 200026 gusting to 33. That sounds like it's out of limits. That's what I immediately thought. And I said, let me do the limitation on this. Mm-hmm. And... Then I looked at it and I said, well, yep, the crosswind component was 31 knots and our max Mm -hmm. is 30 knots. Everybody kept on landing. Uh, Air traffic control kept on going back and forth between 210 and sometimes up to 220. And 210 is within limits by one knot. And I said, that's fine. Until we just passed the marker and about a thousand foot. And they called it back out, and they said, winds 200026, gusting 33. I said, Acme, blah, 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 going around. And uh, everybody continued to land, and I think I'm sure a lot of people are scratching their heads as to why I did that. 
But, I, you know, again, that was not going to assume that everything would be okay because if they listen back to the tape and the last win that I heard was 2-0-0-26, custody 3-3, I'm one not over my limitation, right. uh, then I violated the limitation. Thus, I have violated, uh, you know, our You know our what, rules. honestly, Dana, I don't think that they wondered what you were doing. They were probably going, darn it, he is actually doing the right thing and the rest of us are – are kind of ignoring the fact that the winds are out of limits, at least for our airplane. Um, yeah, for our airplane. I don't know what other aircraft. I mean, I think seven three is thirty five knots. If I know. and I think the 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 Airbus also has a pretty high crosswind um, limitation. We've talked about this before. Uh, our company Acme does uh, any the demonstrated the max demonstrated crosswind that they do when they're certifying an airplane becomes for us at Acme a limit. Uh, not all airlines are like that. I'm not sure even the majority of airlines treat uh, the maximum demonstrated crosswinds as limitations. But uh, so it, in a way, it kind of it kind of um, hinders us from making a, a good judgment call using our pilot brains, uh, because as soon as it goes over that limit, we are illegal to attempt a landing. However, you know, chances are probably, you know. 99 times out of 100, you're going to be okay, even if they are maybe one or two knots out of limits. But if you do something and Dana continued to land and uh, dinged a wingtip or something on the runway, then they would have gone back and looked at, listened to the tapes. And then they would have said, you know, Dana, we need to talk to you about, you know, this and we need to give you some time off without pay. Exactly. Exactly. Correct. Yep. So, uh, you know, that's that's not being complacent. And, you know, could could my first officer, because he was the pilot flying, could have landed it. I think he would have been just fine. Uh, mm -hmm. One knot would not have made all the difference in the world. And we came back around and landed and the winds were uh, a little bit more favorable, but not by much. I mean, the crosswind with the gust is 28 knots. So, you know, do you think three knots really made all the difference in the world? Probably not. Yeah. But, you know, we have to, you know, have to go by the letter of the law. And that's exactly what I did. Sure. But you think about three knots versus six knots versus eight versus right. exactly. 10, in this case, 14 to 24. Yeah. yeah. This case. That's, thank you. That's the big thank you for bringing us back, bringing to back this. into perspective. <laughs> it was like, what? <laughs> what? What are we talking about? Yeah. Uh, yeah this, this, uh, that's this, the tailwind component, by the way, 14 and, to 24 knots, depending on the. And, you know, dust. in most cases, I mean, I think most airlines use 10 knots for their max tailwind. And sometimes they'll, there's exceptions and they'll allow, they'll allow up to 15. But what did you say the tailwind was here? 24 knots? Uh, so if it was gusting to 37 knots, it would be a 24 knot tailwind component. Yeah. That's yeah. kind of high. Yeah. Oh, that, yeah. And 29 <laughs> knot crosswind component. On a wet runway, uh, mm -hmm. in a thunderstorm, mm -hmm. lots of rain. Probably not great visibility. No. I remember when uh, we landing. used to calculate, uh, landing distance, the old fashioned way in graphs and things, uh, we used to, uh, double the tailwind component for safety and mm -hmm. halve the headwind component for safety. And that's just how serious it is to have that tailwind. It just gives you so much unexpected energy. It makes the landing hard because you're going over the ground so much faster, it makes your flare different. You're much more likely to float down the runway and eat up a valuable uh, pavement surface that you need to be on. Uh, and you don't often do it, so you're not really prepared for it. Uh, and, you know, aircraft aren't designed to land with that amount of energy, uh, particularly if they're in the middle of a thunderstorm and it's hissing down with rain. 
Uh, nothing's going to work as well. You're just you know, hiding to nothing. That's true. Hamish, our good friend uh, Robert Fairbairn in the chat room, says, Jeff, you said illegal. In 121 operations, are you illegal to violate that limit imposed by the company? I realize you are certainly in violation from a company view, but are you illegal per the FAA? And the way I understand it is that if you, as the company, say that we are going to treat this as a limitation, then the FAA signs off on it, then basically you are illegal, even according to the FAA, even if they have different rules. But if your company has said, we're going to abide by a, a much stricter uh, kind of a, a number, then that's it. They'll, they'll say, okay, we bless that. And that is now the legal rule. So yes, yeah, it my, would. my company had exactly the same system, Jeff. Uh, in wind limits, it was a, a, a legal limit and, and there mm -hmm. was an absolute limit. There was no discretion allowed as to whether you exceeded it or not. Um, we always relied on the tower wind. So not on the wind on the 80s or the wind on the uh, inertials as you came in. It was always the actual wind off the clock, and you had to stick to it, uh, notwithstanding the fact that you're the captain of the airplane. If there's a damn good reason, then you can break any rules so long as you can justify them. True. All right. Well, that was um, an interesting and unfortunately not good situation for several people. I'm not sure what the latest update is as far as the number, the large number of folks that were hospitalized, if uh, any of them have succumbed to their injuries, but um, I haven't just, heard uh, any additional numbers. But mm, yeah, yeah, I mean, uh, that, there that, were. I mean, you know, of those 179 that went to the hospital, there were at least a few more that were in critical condition and whatnot. So right, Hopefully wouldn't be surprised if there were more that actually sure, sure. succumbed. Anyway, all right, uh, let's move on to something that's not quite as um, negative. And that is item two. Nick, would you like to take a stab at this one? Yes, I'm not quite sure where we got this from, other than I have a document here from EASA, uh, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency. And it was their emergency airworthiness directive aimed at uh, the Airbus, the new Airbus A350. And now we did talk about it last week, and we mentioned the fact that uh, they'd had uh, a couple of engine rundowns uh, because of liquids being spilt on the center console of the A350 um, in and around the area of the engine control box, which has the big master switches that control the main fuel valves and the, thru the thrust levers, etc. So it also raised the um, airworthiness directive uh, basically saying that uh, they uh, airlines need to establish a uh, an um, a, an area around the cockpit where you're not allowed to have fluids of any kind, uh, and presumably this is until they can work out if they can modify their equipment in that area to make it slightly more waterproof. But uh, I, so I I sent them an email telling them to consider using Saran wrap. Around that, the, um, yeah, that's a damn good idea. <laughs> I think they ought to just put the cockpit in a big plastic box. Oh, yes, they, that's true. Now, I managed to do some digging around, and uh, I found uh, some more information. So what I've got uh, is a, uh, an, a red OEB, and an OEB is uh, a, um, a notice uh, officially called an uh, 
Operational Engineering Bulletin, if I'm not mistaken, an OEB Operations Engineering Bulletin. There you go. So this is a bit more specific, and we can find out. Now, we know what happened on these two aircraft. They spilt some liquid on the center console between the two pilots, and the liquid drained down, and a, a while later, uh, they had engine failures. Uh, one failure, obviously, to an engine airplane, left with one engine. They both landed safely. But when they were looking at that, they couldn't get that engine going again, and they put that down to the fact that liquid had penetrated in amongst all the electronics down there, and uh, there had been a failure of the control box, which had shut down the high-pressure fuel valve on that particular engine. Now, the new restriction provides a liquid-prohibited zone on the cockpit, and this is to prevent uh, inadvertent spills. Uh, on on or near that center console. And that's pretty extensive. So it stretches all the way from the side stick controllers. Uh, you're not allowed to have any liquids inboard, basically, of the side stick controllers uh, over the center console, uh, which includes the uh, pilot's trays where they would normally eat a meal. So they can have a meal of it, but soup wouldn't be allowed for example it goes back to uh, all the way back to the um, third occupant seat the jump seat which uh, is between the uh, two pilot seat but at the back of the cockpit and that entire area uh, there is now prohibited for um, liquids and uh, they say things like the use of open vessels such as but not limited to cups, mugs, flasks, screw lid water bottles. So if you've got a water bottle with a screw cap, you're not allowed to bring those into that area. Soup bowls and other third-party containers, and they're completely prohibited on the flight deck. Now, so that area not only is an area you're not allowed to bring fluids, you're not allowed to bring any of those containers I just mentioned onto the flight deck at all. Now, the restrictions may vary depending on the airline and depending on the um, controlling authority for the country that is operating these aircraft. But So this is a sort of generic suggestion as to what will be out there. Um, all visitors to the flight deck uh, on the ground in the air uh, and in the air are forbidden to consume any fluids on the flight deck. So if you're visiting, no fluids. All food trays have to go outside of the pilot's seat. So now, I think if you remember, I said in the old days, we, or on my airline, we always used to pass drinks on the outside. And that was a rule which sadly wasn't always obeyed. Um, so, but now not only, you know, you're not allowed to pass drinks in this center area, you've got to pass your food trays out there, which is not comfortable. And the trays have got to be removed as soon as they're finished with. And um, in the case of unexpected turbulence or, you know, maneuvers, the uh, the crew have got to the flight deck, have got to delay any service that comes into the uh, flight deck. Um, I don't know about you guys, but we always used to hang a uh, plastic bag on the uh, arms of our seats. It used to hang down near the center console, uh, but it was just there to, for us to push our rubbish into. And uh, that practice is now forbidden, and uh, you've got to use the speci uh, special um, uh, rubbish bins with a lid on that are on the outside of the cockpit. So they're uh, just under the windows, uh, you'd see. You've got to use those. 
Um, and the center console is basically a, a liquid prohibited area and a sterilized, a sterile, not sterilized. <laughs> <laughs> well, the pilots might be, maybe, but the, yeah. a sterile area. So, um, to get around the, uh, the problem of having all these different types of spillable drink containers, you know, I mentioned I used a Starbucks coffee cup. Well, they've now, uh, certainly on, uh, some airlines, they have uh, issued a uh, spill-proof uh, mug, and this is the only vessel that is uh, allowed to uh, be used for drinks other than um, a bottle which must be, again, of the company design only. You're not allowed to bring any of your own stuff onto the flight deck and use it. It's kind of a sports bottle, which has obviously a kind of sucking nipple on the end, if you pardon the expression. So they've gone uh, obviously very seriously into this and tried to devise a way to keep that center console uh, as protected as possible um, until they can think of something to uh, bolster the waterproof qualities of those switches. So that's going to be quite a restriction for A350 pilots uh, in the future. So really one of the, one of the main reasons I wanted to kind of go over this uh, emergency airworthiness, airworthiness directive is the fact that I made the mistake of using an article from a source that um, uh, basically in their headline last show, I believe said that liquids pr were prohibited completely from the cockpit. And then I read something else. I read this directive and I went, wait a minute. No, not, not completely prohibited from the cockpit, but, um, and I think their, their headline was coffee was strictly prohibited from no liquids in the liquid pro prohibition zone. So I, I kind of wanted to somewhat set the record straight and get us above 50% there. And I do apologize for using that source for that news article. Um, should have used a flightglobal.com article uh, instead. And, uh, but Liz dug up this uh, EASA EAD from the, uh, uh, the EASA website. And uh, so that was like from the, the horse's mouth, so to speak. So, and then that reminded me because I thought, wow, that sounds exactly like what Nick was talking about. I guess it's a little bit more restrictive, uh, the, the OEB or whatever it was that you were just talking about. But, um, basically what EASA is saying is, you know, a common sense approach to, you know, not handing liquids over the center pedestal area so that, you know, if you do spill it, you could possibly cause an engine yeah. shutdown they've gone just a little bit further than that saying right. that actually to just not only that but if you're on the flight deck with a drink it can only be the operating crew that have it uh, and uh, it's got to be in these uh one or two approved containers on you know and that's probably going to apply to, to most uh, airlines they've also uh, updated the um uh, the flight crew operating manual to uh, give um, actions in the event of. So if you do accidentally spill some fluid uh, in, uh, the, uh, in, on that center console, uh, if, if there's no apparent failures, you've uh, merely got to consider landing at the next suitable airport. So it's called land answer. Uh, so at next suitable airport. Uh, however, of course, if uh, you start getting engine problems, lose an engine, then it's a land ASAP as soon as possible. Very good. All right. 
Moving on to item C, um, this was an incident with Kalita, um, Kalita Air uh, 4368, the flight number. It's a Boeing 747-412-BCF. Let's break that down. 747-400 series. What's the BCF mean? Something, something. Boeing Boeing converted freighter. Converted freighter. I guess it was originally. I thought it was a type of fire extinguisher. Sorry. Could be. Uh, struck a trash bin on takeoff from one way, runway 25 right at Los Angeles Airport or International Airport. The takeoff was aborted and the aircraft came to a stop on the runway near taxiway B6. The tower controller, controller reported there was, quote, an excessive smoke coming from the nose gear. The flight crew shut down the aircraft on the runway to allow ARF to inspect the aircraft. It appeared that both tires of the nose gear had blown as a result. And the reason why I thought this is kind of interesting, Nick, <laughs> is because uh, last July, Nick and I were barreling down a... <laughs> did a, you have flashbacks? <laughs> yes, I did. <laughs> on my way to Oshkosh. <laughs> and on the way to Oshkosh in a huge RV. <laughs> and we were in the center lane and there was an 18-wheeler in the left lane. They shouldn't have been in the left lane. And uh, there were a whole bunch of cars, pickup trucks, everything over there on the right side. And we were kind of sandwiched. (laughs) There was a pickup truck in front of us and this, 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 uh, purple colored plastic trash bin or traffic cone. I don't know what you want to call it. Kind of goes flying out of the back of this pickup truck. And And I'm going, uh, what do I do? Because I can't go to the left. I can't go to the right. And You're bigger than the trash cans. So. Yeah, and I just kind of like climbed over it, flown over it. We yeah. just basically just kept on oh, going. Well, Nick is sitting over there in the passenger seat, going, "Ah!" <laughs> <laughs> He's screaming. And I looked over at him and goes, "It's not helping." <laughs> <laughs> I was just playing the part of a good first officer. <laughs> you were. The sound effects are free. Oh, it was great. It was great. And we hit the thing, and uh, it just. Uh, I was surprised. I was kind of expecting a lot of damage, but uh, we made um, you know good work of that. Uh, of that bin and it just caused a little um i don't know like a smudge mark on the on the plastic uh fairing of the uh front yeah, it very uh, well yeah it did <laughs> we even fessed up to it when we uh turned in the rv to the uh, owner saying well the only incident we had was this and there's like a little mark there to get that'll buff out <laughs> so that'll buff out yeah. Um, so uh, when I was reading, a little this, rubbing compound never heard anything. A little bit, a little bit different story here with a seven forty seven barreling down the runway with a trash bin, you know, rolling right in front of you. And uh, yeah, so yeah. I don't know, blowing both the nose gear tires. That's yeah problematic. Yeah, probably did the right thing by aborting. I'm, I'm not sure. Did they say how fast they were going when I don't they aborted? Think it says yeah. No, probably in the low speed realm. Mm. I would imagine. Mm-hmm. Anyway, good thing that they did because they you know, blew both nose gears, nose gear tires, I should say. All right. Anyway, let's move on. Uh, Dana, would you like to take the next one, sir? I will be happy to. All right. We've got uh, Iceland Air 757 landing in Keflavik. Uh On landing, Iceland Air Boeing 757-200 registration TF-FIA performing flight uh Iceland Air 529 from Berlin, Tegel, to Keflavik, which is in Iceland, uh, which had uh, 166 people on board, landed on runway 10 at uh, 1546 local time, but suffered a collapse of the right main landing gear. 
The aircraft came to a stop on the runway, resting on its nose gear, the left main gear and right engine. Uh, and uh, actually, I, that sounds weird. Now, let me try that again, Jeff. The aircraft came to a stop on the runway, resting on its nose gear, left main gear, and right engine. The passengers disembarked onto a runway and were taken to the terminal. There were no injuries. Um, what What's notable on this is that the... Uh, the passengers, some of them were video recording, and everything seems like it was a relatively normal touchdown, even though it was a little bit windy there in Catholic. Um, and the next thing you know, the right main landing gear had uh, collapsed, releasing sparks and smoke from the engine. Of course, that's what was dragging on the, the runway. Um, so with the video, it, it became pretty apparent that there was something a little unusual. And what happened was... Um, the uh, Aviation Herald had received information that the gear had on the aircraft had been replaced mid-January this year. So it was actually out of service from, I think it was November? Yeah, November 19th through the um, middle of January uh, when the aircraft was having some maintenance done to it. And so it had flown several times, uh, I think it was 60 or 70 sectors, since the maintenance release. And then that's when the aircraft had the problem. So it sounds as though they found some pieces on the uh, runway uh, uh, from the main landing gear, uh, missing pin from the landing gear. So uh, it sounds like it was a maintenance issue and not proper installation, possibly, of this um, of this uh, landing gear. Uh, as far as the 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 uh, weather at the airport, it was it was a bit windy, so it may have been a, a contributing factor to pushing uh, on that linear gear. The winds were 30 to 50 miles an hour at the airport, uh, which is pretty typical there. Um, but it was a normal landing uh, and a normal rollout until the, the gear had collapsed. So uh, there was a normal evacuation. Everybody stayed pretty calm on the aircraft. Normal evacuation via air stairs. They did not drop the slides. And still people decided to go ahead and take all their all their personal items off the airplane with them. But in this case, I guess it's really not an emergency Yeah, I, I really can't fault them in this I case. really can't, yeah. yeah. So, um, But that's about all we have on that at this point. It, you know, the article goes on to a lot of detail as to, you know, people got off the aircraft and what they did later on. They took their Twix bar with them. But uh, <laughs> I thought it was actually pretty interesting. Um, this was added information uh, from the passenger that originally – you know, kind of gave them uh, their witness account. Uh, and I think he was also the one that took the video. Um, and I thought it was kind of interesting. He was kind of a little bit disappointed that he wasn't able to slide yeah. down the stairs. Yeah, the, uh, the slides. That. <laughs> <laughs> he was looking forward to going down the slide, but he would not have been so happy if he got some rug burn or a broken ankle or twisted ankle or, you know, had to leave all of his personal items. Although he was ready. I mean, he grabbed his t- Twix bar. Mm-hmm. He had his, all, you know, his car keys and his uh, cell phone and all his important documents that he had taken out of his bag, which he was very smart to do. Mm-hmm. If he they had actually had to evacuate, so but yeah, he was a disappointment. It was kind of funny. I almost feel like reading his account that he must be um, a uh, um, I don't know a, a undercover or um, undeclared av geek. I think yeah, so. I I hope it he's was, a listener because uh, that's might. exactly what you know uh, <laughs> one of us I hope would have done. We'd yeah. have uh, just grabbed what essentials we needed, put them in our pockets. And then got off the airplane uh, because you can get on a slide with things in your pockets. That's not a big deal. But taking your hat and luggage with you, nah, that's not so clever. Yeah, not a bad idea for 
And just for once you do actually get off the aircraft, no matter how you deplane, have everything in your pockets that you're going to need immediately after deplaning. So if you're going through immigration customs, you need your passport in your pocket. If you're getting in your car, you want your keys in your pocket. Why you want to go digging and rooting through your luggage for those things? Probably not bad practice to have it all on hand. And then, you know, if there is an emergency or something, you don't have to have to worry about it. You know, certainly, certainly a very experienced traveler. There's no question yeah, about it. And like he it. went to go visit Liz in Toronto. Oh, yeah. He's, yeah, that was his final destination. He lives with Liz, actually. Say hi, Liz. Just kidding. <laughs> yeah, we, we're getting the thumbs up from Liz, and she's all no, happy I don't think she's here. giving us the thumbs up. <laughs> um, no, she gave us thumbs up. Move oh, on. did she? Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly what that nonverbal communication is right now, but... Um, so, <laughs> so just a, a little behind the scenes action in our, uh, control center here lives the, uh, person in control. Well, <laughs> not really. Uh, she, yeah, she's shaking her head. No, it's, we see her video. We can see her there. You can't, but we can. And, uh, so sometimes she gives us some nonverbal communication, which is <laughs> interesting. Um, but, uh, what was I going to say? Oh, you know, I think that he was a little disappointed that he couldn't go down the slides. But I bet that if he had, that it, shortly after he hit the uh, tarmac or whatever you want to call it, uh, he would have been unhappy with the 30 to 50 mile per hour winds. And I don't know what the temperature cold. was. I'm sure it was cold. It's Iceland. And it's that yeah, reminds yeah. me today, uh, the whole trip that I just did was all Rochester and back, uh, Rochester, Atlanta, Rochester, Atlanta, blah, blah. Rochester, a little chilly up there. Not too bad, actually. Uh, but uh, people coming on the uh, flight this morning. Um, I overheard the flight attendant at the door say, oh, flip-flops. Oh, you don't see that very often up here. So somebody was coming on board the aircraft with flip-flops, and and they said, well, because we're going to Florida. And I'm thinking to myself, I wanted to say, well, I hope that we don't have to abort the takeoff and do an emergency evacuation, because you're going to be unhappy with your decision regarding your footwear today for this flight. So, or the shorts unless, unless you probably wear your- wearing, too. Yeah, I Unless didn't see. Unless you wear your flip flops year round in all sorts of weather conditions. Yeah, I guess that's possible. Yeah, mm-hmm. I I do remember. Uh, oh, As someone mind. who used to do stuff like that when I was at, like at, at Georgia Tech, um, I actually, well, I shouldn't say this, but I I didn't even wear <laughs> shoes. <laughs> yeah, even you in the winter time, ways two feet of snow, didn't you? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I was you know Georgia Tech here in Atlanta, and in the winter time it gets cold. I'm walking around barefoot. What an I wore flip flops to work today. Although I keep Did my you? actual footwear at and the Steph, office. I don't but know it was, why it doesn't surprise me, but you want wearing, wearing flip-flops all the time doesn't surprise me at all. No, not at all. Yeah. Even even when it's snowy outside, it's okay. Yeah. Anyway, that's just it's cold. Just <laughs> exactly. It's just cold. Freezing. Why are my feet so I'm cold? Freezing. Why am I so cold? Nick, do you want to bring some sanity to this Please help us. Podcast. Well, I'll, I'll do my best. Okay. Um, this next incident then is uh, an Air Canada... Uh, Boeing uh, 767-300 registration, Charlie Golf Hotel Oscar Zulu. And he was performing a flight from Madrid uh, to Toronto uh, with 130 passengers and eight crew, and he was getting airborne from Madrid's runway 36 left. Now, uh, the reason that we always practice V1 cuts, as we call or engine failures at V1, is because it's probably the 
the hardest, the most difficult moment in a takeoff run to have an engine failure. And might take my proverbial hat off to this guy because um, he suffered uh, a number of uh, compressor stalls and bangs and streaks of flame out of his engine uh, caused from a burst tire that happened just uh, at or around V1. So he did a really good job getting airborne. Um, what had happened was the tire, uh, just one of his main, uh, his tires on his main bogey, the left-hand side, uh, I think it was the rear left uh, tire on that collection of four tires had burst. And uh, debris from the burst tire had gone forwards, just flipped forwards by the uh, spinning of the tire. And then because the engines, like a big vacuum cleaner, particularly at takeoff power, had been sucked up into the engine, uh, and uh, damaged the uh, blades of the engine, and the airflow had therefore been disrupted and got engine surges and stalls. Um, not good. So he's got a burst tire, and he's got an engine failure as he's climbing out. Now, so I think, first of all, good job for the crew for handling this double emergency. And the other good job is um, they left the gear down. So congratulations for that now whether that there was some indication that the gear wouldn't come up i don't know why i don't think that would be a particular system in a boeing i don't think that's the case so i'm pretty certain they realized that they might have had a tire problem and an engine problem uh, and which is a really clever bit of assessment in the short time they had available and decided to leave the gear down uh, climbed away and uh, assessed their situation, went into a hold and started to burn off fuel. Um, they declared a May Day, so congratulations. They're in Europe where May Day is the IKEA word and everyone uses it in Europe, so they declared a May Day uh, and um, then decided what they were going to do. Now, um, they had some information, which was good, because uh, a Follow Me car uh, sent uh, photographs of the aircraft as it got airborne. Uh, to their uh, Air Canada dispatcher. So they had those. And also uh, the air traffickers um, said uh, to the guys in the aircraft, look, uh, someone had taken a video of you getting airborne and it's already on YouTube. So this is the, <laughs> you can have a look at it. <laughs> well, they couldn't obviously on the flight deck, but uh, the Air Canada guys on the ground dispatchers and engineers could get onto YouTube. And this is the first time I know of an airline being using this kind of uh, information that's there and instantly available uh, from the uh, air spotters and the people who uh, take movies of aircraft. So I think that's really neat. They were able to get a look at their aircraft as it had got airborne. Um, now, they uh, they ended a hold. Uh, there was a, it was a few language problems. Uh, um, they, they were given a, a, a range and a bearing from a, a DME to do their hold, and there was a little bit of confusion about that. But basically, they went into a hold for about four and a half hours. Now, they were burning off fuel. They got the situation basically under control. Their left engine shut down. Their single engine now just using the right engine. They've got the gear down. They've got a damaged tire, and they're reducing weight. Uh, and I think the problem they were trying to consider was with this damaged tire, how much runway are we going to need to land? And they had decided to reduce weight to give them a bit of a safety factor so they wouldn't risk uh, running off the end of the runway. And while they were up there in the hold, um, Spanish Air Force uh, 
they've got a base just down the road there at uh, Torian, and they've got F-18s based there. And they decided to launch one. They did so pretty quickly. It only took about half an hour to get one off, to come up and assist the crew by taking a look at um, the damaged tyre. And he did that. And there are some pretty good pictures, both of the aircraft climbing away and this F-18 in formation, both taken from both the inside and the outside of the aircraft. Now, the ones from the inside you can find very uh, easily on uh, One Brown's analysis on YouTube. Uh, it's the Broncolirio channel, is that right? Uh, yeah, just nodding because he's got his mouth full of crisps. Um, and um, uh, he's got some great pictures, great images taken and video of this F-18. Now, I've also seen some passenger reports uh, saying how worried they were that this fighter jet was uh, close to the uh, 767. And I'm going to set everyone's mind at rest here and say that I've seen exactly what the F-18 did, and I did exactly the same thing, not with a civil aircraft, but with other military aircraft. Uh, it's very common for military aircraft to go and formate on, a, on a, another machine that's got a problem and take a look, whether it be a missing panel or some damage to the gear or whatever it is, and uh, close up to a, a normal close formation position. And it's perfectly safe. It's something the military pilots do, uh, fighter pilots do all day, every day. Uh, and uh, there's really absolutely no cause for concern. And he was able to get up nice and close, take a look at the tire, take some pictures, uh, and um, describe to the crew on the same frequency uh, what the problem was. Now, the only thing I don't understand about this now, because all the crew have now got to do is just leave the gear down, burn off until they're comfortable with their weight, and land on one engine. Um, the only thing I don't understand now is that having had an inspection of the tyre, being told what it's like, they decided to retract the gear. Now, Jeff's holding his hands up. <laughs> I, was going, I was going to say the same thing. Like, why? Yeah, and I'm why sure did they do Dave, that? the question's going through Dana's mind as well. Uh, yes. You know, you, you're in a perfect situation to land. You've had damage to the undercarriage uh, and a tyre. And what's more, you're trying to burn off fuel. So having that gear down is not a bad idea. Right, because you're burning more fuel. Drag. Yeah. Yeah. Now, the only possible suggestion, and, and I'm just throwing this out there, is that um, because they've got the gear down on their single engine, should they have a problem that needs them to be able to maneuver or climb the airplane more specifically quickly, uh, then they um, then they in better placed with the gear up and flying slightly faster. And that's the only thing I'm going to think. Or perhaps they were thinking, well, uh, if we can prove we can get the gear up and down, then if we do a go around, then we can raise the gear. And I'm thinking, well, actually, no, I, I'm not with you there, guys. But anyway, let's not second guess them. They did a great job of the emergency. They bought the gear up. Uh, and what's more importantly, when they got on finals, it successfully came back down again and hadn't done any damage. Because the big problem is that those gear wells are pretty tight for space. They're, they're fine. But if you've now got a damaged tire with bits hanging off it, uh, there's always the chance that those might get caught up in the exposed hydraulic pipes and lines that, are, that sit around the inside of that gear well and when they put the gear down they might have given themselves uh, yet another problem so i'm thinking about that i have no um 
concern over the fact that they held for four and a half hours nearly uh, and burned their fuel down to 28 tons because I think that's a sensible move if you're concerned about your landing distance. There's no point landing overweight. And what's more, with one bogey damaged, you really don't want to land overweight if you can possibly avoid it. So a, a difficult situation having uh, these two um, failures, these two emergencies, uh, one on the other. And when they got down, they took some pictures of the uh, engine. It had, did have quite a bit of damage uh, to the engine inlet liner. Well, obviously, that debris as well as the rubber had gone back into the engine and damaged the uh, blades and disrupted the airflow, which caused the engine to uh, fail. And uh, the other question that some people have might have is why didn't they dump fuel? Well, earlier versions of the 7.6 had dumping uh, capability, but this particular one, and I think it either didn't have it or had had it removed because it was considered a um, something they wanted to keep um, maintenance-wise, perhaps or whatever. Anyway, they they didn't have a dumping facility. One less thing to break. Exactly right. So an interesting emergency um, for us as pilots, the worst possible thing, uh, really, a double emergency occurring very close to your decision of speed, That's about as hard as it gets for an airline pilot. And the fact that they smoothly and safely got the aircraft airborne, brilliant job. I think all the made decisions, other than the raising of the gear uh, when they had that inspection, uh, can be applauded. That one. I'm sure the captain is still thinking, well, I don't know if it was the right thing to do. I know we're probably in the same frame of mind. What do you yeah. guys say? I agree. That was the only thing that, I mean, I thought they did a fantastic job of handling this compound emergency. And the only thing that made me kind of scratch my head a little bit is the same thing that you were talking about, Nick, the fact that they decided after the inspection, okay, let's go ahead and retract the gear. I'm thinking, why? You're trying to burn as much fuel as po- as fa- quickly as possible have all that drag out there, just leave it alone. You got, I mean, your, your gear is down and it's showing green. And so let's just leave it. You got a good thing there. Let's not mess it, mess this up. But, um, and then the other thing I'm amazed about is I was very surprised that, I mean, when you look at the pictures, I mean, and you look at a 767 engine inlet inlet and where the aft tire is on that left main, it's, that's a big distance for that rubber to be close. flung no it's not close at all it's not like a 737 it's a no it's it's on the rear part of the bogey as well so it's got to get past the front uh t- set of tires and all the undercarriage legs and then fly forward in front of the intake to then turn around and get sucked in that really wasn't their day was it no yeah. and i was very surprised that there was enough rotational velocity or whatever the term is to throw that big chunk Forward, forward and get sucked forward. into the yeah, yeah i thought well there's no way that that could happen but apparently that can happen physics yeah physics never understood yeah. <laughs> i'm just <Me> either <laughs> sorry i'm with you i'm with you guys i mean i can't cannot really cannot believe the uh the fact that they want to retract, retract the gear that's just that to me is is just wow why yeah I think, as so. as Nick said, I think they're going to probably think, you know, in hindsight, hmm, not sure that that was the best thing to do there, but uh, we did, and uh, it was a happy ending, so kind of hard to fault them too much for that. Yeah. All right. Thank you, Nick. Uh, let's see. Let's continue with the news folder here with F. Um, 
a UT Air Boeing 737-500 in Yusinsk on February 9th, landed short of the runway, gear collapse and runway excursion on landing. So they're coming in uh, from uh, Moscow to Yusinsk, Russia, um, flight 535 with 94 passengers and six crew. They were on final approach to Yusinsk runway 13. And it was during the daytime, 1221 local time. They touched down hard, about 15 meters ahead of the paved surface. I think it's about 50 feet ahead of the paved surface of the runway and went through heaps of snow. Both main gear struts collapsed. The aircraft skidded on its nose gear and, and its belly to a standstill off the runway, causing damage to a wing, resulting in a fuel spill. No fire broke out. The passengers evacuated via slides and overwing exits. The aircraft received substantial damage. There were no injuries. That's the good part. Um, the airline reported that the ILS and approach lights were out of service. However, the approach to Yusinsk was possible with the assistance of ATC. I'm not sure exactly what they mean by that. Um, so, you know, you're, you're coming into a runway, and if you look at the pictures, you'll notice the runway is mostly covered with snow. So it's white, and it's probably kind of hard to differentiate between the runway and the uh, air, the surrounding area around the runway. So your depth perception might be affected in some way. I mean, that's why we really appreciate as pilots the uh, uh, pappies or vassies or any kind of a an approach slope indicator system, a visual system to kind of help us understand whether we're on the glide path, below the glide path, above the glide path. Um, the other thing we use electronically is the instrument landing system that gives us that information too. They, this crew didn't have either of those to help them understand what their glide path was. And apparently that was, a, I think, a, it's, they're going to find as a major factor in this accident that they um, didn't realize how low they were. And probably in an effort because of the runway doesn't look like it's the perfect runway for, you know, good friction for braking and everything else. They're thinking, let's get this thing down on brick one, uh, the, the beginning of the runway. So we have a lot of runway to stop the airplane they just misjudge it looks like to me they uh went a little bit lower than they should have and boom sheared off the all the landing gear and came to a rest on the on the engine inlets or the engine cowlings um and then they have some video there's some video taken <laughs> one one of the things i uh, I, I thought about when I was watching everybody get out of the airplane, uh, they, the slides did pop out. Uh, they didn't really need the slides because they were pretty much almost on the ground level anyway, when the door, you know, when you consider the fact that there is no landing gear. Um, but, uh, I did, did you, I think maybe one of the videos I saw flight attendants getting off the airplane at the very end, but I never saw any pilots out there helping with the evacuation, uh, just a bunch of passengers walking off the right. airplane. We're just going to stay here and not let anyone yeah, see our faces I think the pilots were last seen running across <laughs> the airfield in the opposite direction, Jeff. That could be. We need it wasn't a, us. It wasn't we us. need a, a wider view. <laughs> <laughs> Two little black uniforms herring off down the runway. <laughs> there's, a, there's a great, in fact, in one of the photos here, um, uh, the people coming out of the overwing yes. exits. <laughs> this guy kind of jumps off one part of a little bit further out than he should have. And he basically just went from like four or five feet above the ground and just like straight down to the tarmac. And I'm thinking that is going to leave a bruise for sure. It looks yeah. like he slipped. Yeah. Like, that must be what spicy. happened. Yeah. Like his feet came out from underneath him and woo. Yeah. 
That was that was not pretty. Yeah, it it sounds difficult. ILS and approach lights out of service. You you really relying on the uh, aspect of the runway and your own memory of what it should look like. And when it's the edges of the runway all covered in snow, it's going to look completely different to what you might imagine on a on a good day. So, it's, I guess it was one of those visual illusions that you can be drawn into. That allow them to uh, get low. It's a bit sad, I know, but uh, yeah. yeah, I think that's what happened. Actually, I mean, I can I can just almost see that setup. You know, like you don't have anything really to give you a sense of what your your glide path angle is, and then all of a sudden you hit down, and it's like, what was that sound? <laughs> that was our yeah, Lanny Yeah, they almost did up. it fifteen meters before the runway. Oh, oh dear, so it was so close. close. <laughs> 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 Nearly got away with it. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, let's see. Several of you sent in uh, this, this article. This is the most or... newsworthy thing of the past week. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yes. Wait. Yes. It, uh, well, yeah. To, well, some people think so. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of you sent this in. And uh, they're okay. So we have this thing called the uh, jet stream winds that uh, fluctuate along the, um, you know, well, both of the hemispheres, northern and southern hemisphere. In the northern hemisphere, it goes from west to east and uh, this time of year um the the latitude of the, of the jet stream gets a little bit lower and sometimes it can get rather um a, a lot of wind a, a lot of high speed wind and i remember back when i was flying c141s in the air force back in the 80s uh, getting into a jet stream core that was over 200 knots um so we were we were just flying uh, so has nothing. I hate to seems seems like it's always um, you know positioned a little bit lower latitudes when I'm trying to travel to the western part yeah, of the United States the, from the east coast. <laughs> when you're going the wrong it's way, like, oh, this is the longest okay. flight. The flight okay. from Charlotte to the west coast is going to be ten hours today yeah. because of the jet stream. Uh, so um, we were able to make you know a, a really great time from um, from Japan to the west coast of the U.S. Uh, what, the reason why I'm mentioning the fact that this happened in the 1980s is that it, it's not a global warming thing. Um, this happens uh, occasionally that you'll get these super high jet stream cores that are very, very high winds, high velocities. And that has just happened, uh, what, last week? And uh, it looks like a British Airways uh, flight uh, set or may have set a record for the fastest subsonic flight from New York to London. And this article is from foxnews.com, but several of the news outlets did the same thing. And um, so basically, uh, you know, if, you, if you're in a boat and you put your boat into a river and the river is, uh, has a very, very high, fast current, you're going to be going really, really fast uh, over the ground. I mean, somebody's going to look at you from the side of the river and go, whoa, look at how fast they're going. That's because the river current is going so darn fast uh, that that might not be the normal speed of the current. Uh, that's the same thing here. The normal stream, the net, the current of this uh, jet stream may not be quite as, as spectacular as it was last week. And, uh, but it's still helpful. And that's why we uh, now Nick can probably tell us a little bit about the, uh, the Nat tracks, the North Atlantic tracks are the meteorolo- meteorologists get together and they find where the jet stream winds are and where the, most favorable winds are going from west to east. And so they purposely build these track systems so that they take advantage of the fact that you have this nice tailwind. Um, 
And then when you're going the other direction, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Nick, they try to arrange the track systems usually further to the south so that you're not in those strong headwinds. You're, you're in lighter headwinds going back so you don't burn so much fuel and harm the environment. Yeah, absolutely right. They'll, they'll just take a look at the forecast, discuss it uh, with the meteorologists, look at their computer predictions, and uh, just try and make use of them going uh, east and avoid them going west. So they'll often go both north and south of the, uh, tra- of the jet streams to uh, try and get uh, to out of those headwinds when they're coming back to the States. And it's up to you as a company to decide where your destination is and which track is going to afford you the the best option in the same way that uh, if you're trying to get to the UK and want a short flight time, uh, the airlines will all be bidding and trying to get onto those uh, tracks that are closest to the core of the jet stream will give us the most advantage. So, uh, yeah, it's, it can be a little bit of a bun fight to get on, but nowadays those tracks are squeezed up pretty tight, so they've halved from when I uh, joined the uh, airlines and we're flying these. They've halved the lateral distance and halved the vertical distance, so you can get twice as much traffic in those. And uh, as uh, air navigation systems improve, they're going to do even better on that. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't exactly yawn, uh, but uh, it's really not down to the pilots. It's the luck of the drawers to which altitude they get uh, from the ones they bid for and which track they get. Uh, and um, the fact that they're lucky to be in a strong tailwind. Uh, it's not really a great achievement. And I don't know, you know what it... Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, you know, what's really fun, though, is when you are caught up in that uh, fast jet stream across the Atlantic, say from New York to London, and you arrive over the UK at like five o'clock in the morning, but Heathrow's curfew goes until 6 a.m. So you spend an hour <laughs> holding. <laughs> I was just going to mention yeah. the fact that... Oh, there's no stand. So this, this uh, BA flight that... Uh, might have set the record for the fastest subsonic flight almost two hours early. And I'm thinking <laughs> that is not necessarily a it's good not thing. Not only you're talking about the fact that the curfew at the airport holding and everything else, and then you get on the ground at the airport and guess what? Well, we don't have a gate for you because the flight that's in your gate is not scheduled to depart for 45 minutes. Yeah. Exactly right. And once more, uh, there are a lot of the passengers that don't, really don't appreciate it because they've got on, they've got on, yeah, <laughs> Steph Holly had. I was looking forward nice to sleeping. Bed. <laughs> yep. Exactly right. And they're thinking, <laughs> right, well, I can I can have a meal and, and watch a movie, perhaps then I can get five hours sleep and I'll be well refreshed. And if your whole flight is only five hours, they're going, well, that's a cheat. I, I, don't, I either rest or I have a meal. I can't do both now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So the way we look at it in the uh, in the industry is uh, not not a big deal and really not a good thing necessarily. Um, maybe for you know the Guinness World Record book. Fun, fun for statistics. Yeah, uh, I love this article though. Weather conditions likely played a role in the flight's increased <laughs> I love speed. The com- I love the commentary that's been added into this. Well, I, I put that commentary. Put that you there. think? Yeah. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and then uh, the, yeah, that, that's those are my words there. Like. Um, or they just flew the flight as planned as they always do. Yeah, the, 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 here's the, in a statement obtained by Fox News, a spokesperson for British Airways said, we always prioritize, prioritize safety over speed records, but our highly trained pilots made the most of the conditions to get customers back to London well ahead of time. And then I put it, uh, or uh, they just flew the flight as planned, as they always do. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and yeah. the, the best paragraph, though, I have to, uh, yeah, I hope that you agree with me. 
According to yes. weather.com, the overall fastest flight from New York to London was achieved by the Concorde, which made the trip in two hours and 52 minutes in 1996. Although that plane was a supersonic aircraft. <laughs> again, yeah. yeah. Oh, really? Duh. Duh. Never again. <laughs> no kidding. <laughs> Shoot. Anyway, so thanks everybody for sending that in. Uh, yeah, not really a big deal at all. <laughs> just sorry to burst your bubbles. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it's just uh, the journal, the aviation journalists uh, didn't have anything else to write about, apparently. And uh, finally, Steph, would you like to take the last item in the uh, news? Take this one. So okay. this is, um, I think this actually came from the Daily Mail, uh, uh, the Blackpool Gazette. Oh, Blackpool Gazette. I'm sorry. Oh yeah, when I, well, on it, I, I get that. Okay. Yeah, I get that too. <laughs> Just kidding. So my apologies to Blackpool Gazette. And anyway, um, this is about a young gentleman who um, was uh, supposedly the youngest pilot uh, in Britain. Said youngest commercial pilot at the age of 17, which is different from um, what could happen here in the U.S. But um, he is not going to be allowed behind the controls of an aircraft again after lying about his medical history. So that's not good. Um, apparently this young gentleman is 20 now. He's from Blackpool. He admitted to two counts of fraud by false representation due to untruths told on a medical form back in 2016. So he was pretty young at the time. Um, but apparently he had at one point held a class two medical. Um, and Nick, you can, if you're, uh, aware of some of these regulations for how medicals affect how you can, um, or some limitations on what you can do flying, especially as a private pilot. Um, apparently that limited to his um, um, abilities to fly as a private pilot, but not with passengers with a class two medical. Yeah. I don't uh, think you're allowed to have, be a commercial pilot with class two. Class you could two. be class one. Sure. So here in the U S it's a little bit different. Um, you, there, the restrictions are more based on the type of certificate that you have. So you can have a private pilot certificate with a class three medical um, and still be allowed to carry passengers. So it's a little bit different. Um, but regardless, so he was at the time in 2015, um, you know, doing his thing as a private pilot flying a Cessna, um, but with a restriction of or limitation of no passengers. Um, and then he, the next time he went for a medical, he went for a class one medical, but he stated that in the interim, since his previous medical, he hadn't been to see any other physicians, hadn't had any sort of other medical history or problems. Um, and it turns out that that was not the case. Um, he had actually been to see, um, for several medical visits, been to see, uh, more than one medical practitioner and had admitted to loss episodes of loss of consciousness and uh, I think there were a couple other things, fainting and illness as a coping mechanism for dealing with his parents' uh, acrimonious split and divorce. So some unusual things going on here, uh, which he did not report and, and it confessed to. But of course, this all kind of came out um, as these things tend to do. And when that was discovered, um, the courts did not look favorably upon his ability to tell the truth about his medical history and um, basically have given him this pretty pretty hefty, um, um, not sentence per se, but penalty. Uh, restriction penalty. Yeah. That, um, they're not going to allow him to continue to fly, not yeah. going to grant him a medical certificate. So, and on top of that, they've imposed a two-year community order with 250 hours unpaid work and a rehabilitation requirement. So. But he'll never get to fly again, right? I mean, as a That's commercial That's what it pilot. sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Not as a commercial flight or as, as far as I can tell, as any sort of And it's pilot. it's not so much, I think you would agree, Steph, that mm -hmm. the medical condition existed is the fact that he lied. He lied about it. About yeah. It. The, the, the moral of the story is, you know, 
be truthful about whatever's going on in your in your uh, medical history. Um, that stuff's important. It doesn't necessarily mean, even if it seems like something that might be a big hurdle to overcome, that you're not going to be able to fly. Um, you know, as we've talked about time and time again, there's all kinds of different medical conditions that have um, that that people are able to get around and get um, different waivers or statements of demonstrated ability or whatever it is in the country that you live in that will allow you to fly with um, some sort of either. Um, if it's not a limitation, some sort of uh, waiver. So don't don't lie about that stuff. It, it yeah. doesn't stay hidden and it can have very serious negative long-term consequences. Yeah, you might get hired, but eventually the truth will come out. And if you've lied, then it's very, very likely that you're going to lose your job. Mm-hmm. And it's yeah. unfortunate because he so, he's so young and still so young, only 20 now. So that's- uh, Oh, Yeah. Uh, young, but eighty thousand in debt, and still owing money to his it's mother for flying lessons. Um, plus, you know, uh, he's got a, a criminal record now, mm-hmm. and uh, his dreams of becoming a pilot have been completely wrecked. So, fess up, guys. Uh, the The world will try and move mountains to help you if you're the sort of honest bloke that comes up and says, I've got this problem, but I'm desperate to be a pilot. Can you mm-hmm. help me? If you just try and conceal that, uh, then, of course, you know, it'll be exactly the opposite. Mm-hmm. You know, and in this case, if it was some sort of, you know, we mature as we get older, clearly that's kind of a dull statement, but um, well, most of our us. coping, most of us, pilots, not so much. Uh, no, just kidding. Uh, especially not pilots. Um, Shut up. <laughs> but as we, as we mature, uh, we, our coping mechanisms improve. Um, and, uh, you know, you wonder about, especially for someone who's young and their parents are going through a, a nasty split or divorce, um, mentally that's difficult to cope with. And if he was having these types of episodes because of that going on, um, that's something that you may well recover very well from with the right type of medical treatment and counseling and and maturity. That doesn't have to be a reason why it's going to limit you forever from doing what you want to do. Well said. So kind of a sad story. Yeah, it is. You know, he should have known better, but it is a sad story Mm -hmm. for sure. All right. Well, that's the end of the news. And now what everybody's waiting for every week, figuring out what it is that we did since the last show. And it's the segment we call Getting to Know Us. And Steph, why don't you start off? Uh, I wish I had some in- interesting things to well, talk about. We don't necessarily have to have something interesting, oh, but or I mean, thing, I wish I had things to did talk you, about. You, you did nothing since the last. You just been sitting in front of your computer the entire time. I had a pretty lazy weekend, and oh. actually, um, kind of put the ball in motion to get back out and get flying. I know I talked about that last time. I was actually hoping to do that this past weekend, but just for a variety of reasons and weather and other things, it was not a good weekend for that. And it's probably going to take me a few more weeks just to get. I's dotted, T's crossed, whatnot, get back out there and, and get current again and get flying. So uh, look forward to that coming up soon, hopefully. Um, but it was kind of nice to have a weekend to just, I slept in on Saturday morning. I can't remember the last time I did that. I did not set an alarm. That was lovely. Um, got a couple of long runs in, still training for London Marathon in just over 10 weeks time. So I'll be back in Nick's neck of the woods. Oh, neat. Uh, Yeah. And yeah, it's been, um, the weather's been interesting here. Um, I can talk about that a little bit since it's vaguely aviation yeah. related. Um, 
kind of a this is always kind of an interesting time of year in the southeast i feel like in terms of weather it can almost be anything it's still winter technically so it can be cold sometimes but that's still far south so sometimes it's warm and last week we had um, some pretty interesting weather come through in terms of strong thunderstorms tornado producing storms um, this time last week on thursday um, as i was leaving work for my half day um, we had one of those cells come through the Charlotte area with tornado warnings. And I think they actually had six confirmed small tornadoes. So like EF0 to EF1 tornadoes touched down in and around the area. So I actually herded all of my uh, um, office staff into our x-ray room in our office because it's the it has lead-lined walls and it's the center of the building and it's away from windows. And we kind of hunkered down there for about 20 minutes because it you took a peek out the window and it it looked pretty intense outside. It was very dark, very windy. Um, our immediate area didn't sustain any damage, but certainly in the surrounding neighborhoods, lots and lots of trees down, power out, stuff like that. So um, that was an interesting day. It was very warm that day. Um, and then it rained a ton. I think we had someplace like five inches of rain or something crazy. Um, so then some localized flooding. So then a bunch more trees fell down because you had, and then uh, you had all that saturated ground and then there was more high winds. And then on Sunday it snowed. Um, so, and then this past week it's been back, you know, in the 70 degrees again, this morning it was 21 degrees Celsius when I left my house. Yeah. I was looking at the weather in Atlanta when I left Rochester this morning and it says 70 and I went, huh? And then after the front went through, I think it got down to about 60, 61, something like that. 59. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's definitely cooled off a little bit, but, um, yeah, some interesting weather. It doesn't make for great, uh, flying conditions, but there you go. Sorry, I wish I had something more interesting to talk about. So oh, we just want to hear what's going on. We don't care. Yes. Yeah. No. yeah. There's uh, a so I'll be I'll be you'll be happy to know I'm conferencing next week. Hmm. Oh wait, yeah, where are you skiing? Yeah, where are you skiing? <laughs> Park City. <laughs> Park oh, really? City again. Oh, that's yes. a great oh. conference up there on the slopes <laughs> at Park City. It really is. It really is. Yeah. Can't say enough good things about it. Well, Captain uh, <laughs> Niger is in the chat room, and uh, we holidayed up there together. Oh. Uh, yes. rented a nice, a beautiful house up there from a, a colleague of his, a friend of a colleague of his, and did had a wonderful uh, week skiing up there in Park City. But, uh, yeah, we didn't have to go for a conference, though. We just went for the skiing. <laughs> yeah. Well, I will be attending the actual conference. Fortunately, they've been kind enough to split it up into morning and evening sessions, so the day is free to um, enjoy the slopes. Aren't they kind? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very nice. Okay. And my family's out there too, so that's a nice. It's said, about time they realize it because most of you guys are out skiing anyway, so you're not attending the conferences. Hey, I've said it before. This conference <laughs> is actually is actually one of my favorites in terms of content and quality. So, and that's the skiing or the doctor stuff. All, all of the above. All yeah. Okay. okay. <laughs> very cool. And you said that's next week. Yes, that's next week. Ah, so we may not see Steph next week. We'll see. It's it's looking unlikely. Yeah, but we'll see. Okay. Um, we'll try yeah. to arrange it so we can have her on. But if not, we'll know that we'll just be happy that she's out there, um, sitting in a dull conference, listening mm -hmm. to somebody lecturing. Mm -hmm. No she'll, fun she'll or learning will be had at all. I <laughs> know. All right, um, Nick. How are you, sir? How have you been? Uh, yeah, short and sweet from me because mm -hmm. uh, sweet FA's happened. Um, I umpired a bowls match. I've uh, in, endured a couple of uh, really uh, um, bad storms that came through, weather storms. 
Uh, all that's been fine. Uh, nothing else has really happened. Um, I'm one plane tail ahead at the moment, thanks to uh, uh, Blaster Bill, um, uh, William Bill Price, who uh, sent me a great subject uh, concerning the uh, intruder, the A6 intruder uh, over Vietnam, Vietnam. So you won't hear that this week, but next week. Uh, got that done and dusted. Um, and I'll try and keep one ahead if I can, because I've got some busy times coming up. But last week, no, nothing from me at all, sir. All right. Well, okay. How about this com- upcoming week? Anything on the schedule that might be interesting? Uh, not really. I'm heading up to uh, Mayfair in London, which is a nice area, uh, to a really nice uh, um, club, come a restaurant, to enjoy a day with the company. Uh, Virgin uh, said that uh, they would like me to attend a new captain's dinner. So they've got a whole bunch of new captains, and to congratulate them, they've invited them up to this nice um, restaurant, oh. and uh, they've also uh, invited a few of us recent retirees to come and join them for the evening. So that, that'll be nice. I'll put my best bib and tucker on uh, and go up to London with uh, the lady wife, and uh, we'll enjoy ourselves up there. But uh, other than that, nope, nothing's happening at all. Okay. Dana. Hi. How have you been, sir? I'm doing fantastic. I went back to work. Yay. This past weekend, I was so excited. Was it great? Oh, it's so good to be back <laughs> in the flight deck. So so good to be just feeling like I'm productive and and I'm I'm contributing to society mm. and the safety of those wanting to go places. So mm. yeah, it was uh, it was uh, it was very fun to be back, except for the first day. Uh oh, uh oh. <laughs> Turned out to be I, I was doing the Milwaukee shuttle. Um, and uh, flew up to Milwaukee. No issues. I met my FO. He's a, a great guy, FO Paul, who you'll hear from in a little bit. Um, and he's a former F-14 Tomcat guy and an F-18 uh, driver, that uh, the Hornet, so in a former commander in the U.S. Navy. So, And he was a very pleasant gentleman to fly with. Did a fantastic job. So we uh, fly up to Minneapolis, uh, Milwaukee, had no problems there. Coming back, we were taxiing out in relatively uh, heavy snow. It wasn't like heavy, heavy snow. It was, it was just, I would say, moderate uh, snow. And so we got de-iced and taxiing out very cautiously, of course, um, out to the runway. And the flight attendant called up and said, I've got a passenger that's pointed something out on the wing. Oh, really? What was this? Uh this passenger seems to think that the the wing is cracked. It's cracked. That's interesting. Okay. Um, told Manfo to pull on over. I mean, to let ATC know we'd like to pull over and and, uh, and look at something. So I sent him uh, once we set the parking bay, bay the parking brake. I went ahead and sent him back to take a peek at it because I figured you know the passengers overlooking the wing and sees, you know, a panel or, you know, a, uh, you know, attachment or something. It looks like, you know, a straight line that could be perceived as a crack. And my first officer came back with a photo, which he has like, I think an iPhone six or seven didn't really take a good photograph of it and uh, said, yeah, it looks like the wings cracked. I said, Oh really? All right. Well now if you think it looks like that way, uh, we, we need to have this thing looked at. I didn't even bother to go back and look because I trusted my first officer and we pulled uh, back into the gate 
And I went back and took a look, and by golly, it did look like the wing was cracked, although I kind of figured I knew exactly what it was. Um, but I need to get that confirmed because now that the passengers uh, brought up the information to the flight attendant who then brought it up to me, uh, I'm not going to take this airplane airborne without having the uh, the inspection done on it. And I thought it was just uh, the paint and the way that it appeared and it was cracked. And I had maintenance come out, and they, and they verified the exact thing, that it was just the paint that was appearing to be cracked. And I think what really highlighted it was the green um de-icing fluid that was right on top of it so i think that really, that type uh, four really kind of accentuated the it, crack it, it 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 i'll tell you what it cleaned up that crack and made it really clean accentuated it's always important to clean up the crack it is so um that was have uh, we found a show title <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid think, for the artwork that might appear. That. Yeah. Mm, I think point. we have the show title. Uh, <laughs> so clean up your crack. <laughs> clean up your crack on the wing. Don't leave it there. Uh so yeah, it it was a non issue, but problem was of course I went back. Then uh we had to of course uh, you know, maintenance came out and then had to be pushed back and then de-iced yet again ah, and you know of course you know I, i'm think i was very thankful to the passenger to, for pointing something out because you know you never know it could have been something far more serious they don't know but you know in fact that the passenger is willing to speak up and say hey you know this doesn't look right um certainly you're gonna you're gonna uh, take take a look at it and, and it didn't look right so we had it inspected uh so we pushed back and now instead of it being just kind of a moderate snow oh it's heavy snow <laughs> it's plus heavy snow so much so that the icing uh chart says uh go ahead and uh Reinspect the wings prior to takeoff. Doesn't give you hold over time. It just says reinspect the wings prior to takeoff. And wow. they were clean. So, uh, but when I was ta- trying to taxi out, this truly is the heaviest snow I've ever taxied the airplane in. Um, and I could not discern where the tarmac and the grass, uh, began and ended. Mm. Uh, so I went really slow. So I had them turn up the taxiway lights, and I took my time taxiing out there and had my first officer go do the inspection, and we took off without further incidents. So we have crack wing. Um, then we were, got rerouted. Uh, we were supposed to come back to Milwaukee that evening for a shorter layover. I think it was like 11 hour, 11 and a half hour layover. Uh, so we got rerouted to Savannah. My heart was broken because went to Savannah because I love that restaurant there in Savannah called the Old Pink House that had a fire and now is reopened and introduced uh, my first office to it. Absolutely loved it. And then flew back in the morning and back onto our uh, original rotation, um, back up to uh, Milwaukee for the overnight, where I met up with a couple people there. Jeff, do you have that audio by chance? I think I do. Hello, APG community. This is Captain Dana reporting live from the wonderful town of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Sitting here with uh, Uber Frank. Everybody knows Uber Frank, and he's uh, very infamously famous for being our, uh, our driver up there and, and provider up there at Oshkosh this past summer. And his wonderful daughter, Steph, who drove all the way up from Chicago just to see me. I just can't believe she came all the way from Chicago just to say hello to Captain Dana. Wow, it's amazing. We're just finishing dinner here at the uh, wonderful steakhouse that's in the hotel. And uh, I've got my first officer, Paul, who's a uh, military pilot, just retired, spent over 20 years. And I'm going to have him say hello. Uh, And he flew in the Navy 
flying really cool aircraft, such as the F-14 Tomcat and the uh, F-18. So here he is. He's going to say hello. Hey, everybody. How you doing? First Officer Paul here, uh, following orders from Captain Dana, as ordered. <laughs> All right. So anyways, that's not what I do anyways, but the poor guys listening to me and flying with me, I feel bad for them. But anyways, let me pass pass the recorder over to their uh, Uber Frank. Hello, APG crew. Just having a great dinner with uh, Dana and his FO, hearing about cool airplane stuff and having a great conversation. Here's my daughter, Steph. Hi, APG crew. Steph here. Just wanted everyone to know that I only came here because Captain Dana did buy me one beer, and we're talking about F-14 Tomcats. Hope everyone has had a great start to their new year so far. Well, APG community, this is Captain Dana, and I'm going to go ahead and send it back to Jeff in the studio. Thank you for listening, and have a fantastic rest of the night. I will have you know that it wasn't just one beer. I bought several beers for everybody. Oh. Really? But, and, so and, and, you made it worth her while? I, I did make it worth her while. And then what I didn't put in there and I'm going to talk about now is that uh, she, Steph, uh, and not our doctor, Steph, but Stephanie. I know. I uh, keep looking up every time you say <laughs> Steph. I'm like, what? Steph, oh, yeah. huh? <laughs> uh, Uber Frank's daughter. And uh, my FO, Paul, really wanted to go to the uh, basketball game in milwaukee so we then ventured out and did that and frank decided to go home at that point but uh, we went out and we watched uh, milwaukee bucks play uh, sacramento and that was fun we uh, got some seats and and had a very uh, fun rest of the evening and then i i would be remiss for not mentioning when we first got to milwaukee i was coming out of the terminal and when i was coming out of the terminal i hear it's kind of faint but i caught it, it was captain dana <laughs> and I'm looking around, and I see an F. The only thing I see is an F-150 with the with the door, uh, not door, but the window rolled down, holding short of the crosswalk right outside a baggage claim. And um, I noticed somebody was trying to wave me over, and it happened to be uh, Garrett from Milwaukee. And he said, uh, "Captain Dana, nice to meet you. I, you know, don't write in or don't really participate, but I listen, love the show, and you know, goes on and on." He says, "Would you love like to go out to lunch?" And I'm looking at him. I said, "Yeah, yeah sure. Come on down down to the uh, the hall, the the uh, hotel downtown, and I'd love to go out to lunch. But you know, meeting up with Uber Frank, so we already have plans, and so love for you to join us." He said, "Well, I'm tight on time." I said, "Okay. Well, I do apologize. You know." If you're available later, let me know. And uh, unfortunately, uh, we kept on missing each other. I, I had given him my cell phone number to go ahead and contact me locally uh, for dinner, and and he, he responded with an email. I don't check my email every every you know fifteen twenty minutes or whatever. It was later on in the afternoon that I got to it after I was with Uber Frank and had a very pleasant afternoon with him. Um, and so that was uh, that was about it. So Garrett, I hope to see you next time I'm in Milwaukee. And uh, you know, reach out to us. Don't be, don't be afraid to let persistence, us know. Garrett. Persistence, yeah. persistence pays. And if I'd known that you, uh, he actually emailed me after midnight the night before I was coming into Milwaukee. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I'm sorry, I didn't check my email. Yeah, sometimes uh, there, there are so many ways for people to kind of try to contact us, like Slack and other things. And um, I think uh, one of the most recent meetups that I had with uh, David Lieb. 
uh, he had posted something in Slack about being excited about being on my flight to Memphis. And I didn't even notice it until I was on the way to the airport that morning, very early. I'm thinking, huh? What? What's going on here? So, um, yeah, we we apologize for not being able to keep track of all these different places to be on social media and email and all that kind of stuff. But be persistent and and don't just use one way to contact us. Try to use multiple ways. Maybe you'll have better chan- a better chance of actually you know, getting our attention. Absolutely correct. Oh, one other thing. Yeah. Milwaukee. Yeah. My favorite place to buy sausages. Mm-hmm. Cause Ooh Singer or Un Singer, however you say it, sausage house is up there and great German sausage house. So I brought home an entire supply f- for most of the summer, hopefully the last of the uh, really good stuff to grill on the, the lake. So if we do have a retreat, I have a, good supply oh good look forward to that that's about all i have going back to work on sunday excellent okay um sunday what a three or four day trip four day all right um where are you going to be uh i am going to be i just uh, i've been talking to ag and rh up there in greens our, I mean, well, I'm not sure that they're there. Hang on a minute. In that area. Hang on a minute. You, are you allowed no to say that? No one knows where they are. <laughs> yeah, no. Uh, bleep. Greens. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, no. no where is no. that? I, don't, I, have I have no, no idea, idea where that is. Greensburg. I didn't even say it right. You know? Greensburg. Greenberg. Greenberg. Yes, the, 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 the Jewish Greenberg. version. Is that um, near Coke Factory? Yes. <laughs> um. Damn it. <laughs> Jeff, strike that from the record. I'll try please. to fix it. <laughs> I know you'll have a hard job. I must have said it 10 times already. I know. There's going to be a lot just of start over. It. Just start, over. That, start that over, Dana, and then he can just edit. So, all Dana, of that. I didn't say what podcast. <laughs> hey, Dana, where are you, you going to be next week? <laughs> I'm going to be in Greenberg, <laughs> Mississippi. Uh huh. Oh, uh, well, you opened it up, so uh-huh. you know. If Freudian slip is that fair? Oh, and I, uh, Birmingham, I think, and then I'm looking it up. Yeah, Birmingham, and I have a long Charleston overnight. I love that Ooh, Charleston. Charleston. Very nice. Yeah, so I'll be going to Hanks. I think it's called Hanks Seafood. I'm sure for uh, dinner. Uh, Very love cool that place. Hey, if you want to get together with Dana, um, just head over to the APG calendar and Slack, and um, just or call him up. <laughs> Call me up, text me, yeah. Slack, something. Yeah. Don't yeah. send me a, an, an email the night before I'm supposed to be up at four o'clock in the morning. Yeah, don't do that. He's being send sarcastic. Me an email at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> do it a few days ahead of time. Maybe Give you'll have a chance head, to see it. Some headway. So. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Um, let's see. Let me see what I have to talk about. Um, well, we covered uh, Dana's audio from his Milwaukee meetup. Always great to hear from Frank and Steph. Um, so, uh, the last podcast we had, uh, the, uh, plain tale, um, Nick's wonderful plain tale where he had, um, somebody, um, recording the voice of Orville Wright, uh, Greg, oh, yeah. Greg Willits, uh, my very, very Lovely good man. friend. Great and, voice. Yeah. And, um, so I, I, I don't know if you'll remember, but, uh, during the last show, I had said something to the effect of. Well, he never, he doesn't listen to the show, so <laughs> it doesn't matter. And then uh, I said, well, okay, let's do a test. Uh, Greg, if you're listening, give me a call. So yesterday I'm up in Rochester and I 
my phone's ringing and it says Greg Willits. And I went, huh, I wonder what he's calling about. <laughs> and he goes, yeah, Greg here. What did you want? I went, well, what do you mean? What did I want? What do you want? You're, you're calling me. <laughs> you tell me what this is about. Yeah. And then I finally realized, oh, I think I know what's going on here. And I, I thought, well, oh, so you actually did listen to the show. And he goes, yeah, I did. Because I knew that I was going to be part of the plain tales. And that's why I'm listening to the show. So like five shows from now, you have to ask him again to yeah. call you? To see well, on, you know, every, you know, he, he's got a lot of things no, to do I in know. his life. I know. I'm, I'm kidding. <laughs> I know. Um, well, I'm and very pleased that he finds time to do those little bits for my plain tales. Oh, he's, he he's so good. A wonderful voice. He uh, does. He is a, a lot of effort into it. He's, so a, he's quite a performer and he's very talented in, in so many ways. Anyway, um, his, um, we had a nice long conversation about, all kinds of stuff, um, including podcasting workflows and that kind of thing. And so we're, we're, I'm kind of, uh, kind of going through some stuff with him and, um, and I'm talking about one of the new things we're doing on our show. Uh, the last two episodes, you, some of you may have noticed, I know that some of you have mm -hmm. that, uh, we are doing something, um, uh, an enhancement called chapters where, um, podcast clients that support chapters, uh, can, um, you know, you can you skip to various places where we're talking about certain things. Uh, I can embed links uh, to the chapters and even embed images. So it makes it a much better experience, user experience for the people that are uh, listening to our show via the uh, audio only podcast. And so I was telling Greg about that. And, um, and so he says, well, here, let me let me do some experimentation here. And he's uh, thinking about doing the same thing for his show. and um, so one of the, the files that he that he uh, was using, I thought he just made this up just to kind of be like tongue and cheek, cheek and be really really funny. Uh, the title of the show that he was using was "The Legacy of Captain Jeff," and I <laughs> thought, yeah, that's, that's funny. I just that's I, I typed back "lol," you know, blah blah blah, and I'm looking at and we were looking at various things. And then I um, this morning when I woke up very early. It says, okay, well, I posted it and see what you think. And so it was actually a show that he published. He and his wife do this show, a wonderful show called, uh, um, uh, we'll see. Uh, now I'm, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to draw a blank. Um, oh, shoot. Imperfect. Imperfect living. living. Um, Adventures in Imperfect Living is the name of his show that he does with his lovely wife, Jennifer. And so he goes, yeah, go ahead and, you know, download it and see what you think. And then uh, I'm looking at it and I'm going, Oh crap! He actually named his latest episode "The Legacy of Captain Jeff." So in it, um, he, he talks about how we ended up meeting and how I ended up getting into podcasting, and uh, it was just kind of a, a great trip um, down memory lane for me. So thank you, Greg, for for talking and saying all the nice things that you did. Um, and uh, so yeah, check that out if you are. I know that there are several people that are uh, uh, people that listen to. Um, podcast that uh, I was involved with in the StarQuest production network many, many years ago. And uh, so Greg brought a, uh, back a lot of memories about that. So check it out if you haven't been subscribing to uh, the uh, their great podcast. So I just wanted to mention that. And uh, thanks again, Greg, for saying all those nice things about me and uh, my friendship with uh, with him and his wife is just super strong. And uh, I look forward to kind of rekindling it and, uh, you know, getting together with them more. In fact, uh, one of the things I used to do was, uh, print t-shirts, uh, I did t-shirts for 
several of the podcasts at the StarQuest Production Network, including the Rosary Army podcast um, uh, t-shirts for for them and uh, coffee mugs and that kind of thing. And they want to try to start getting into making their own coffee mugs. So they, I gave them all my mug making equipment and uh, I'm going to go up there sometime and kind of go over all the details with them, how to, how to do the process. But anyway, enough of that. Um, let's see. I'm going to be leaving tomorrow for Portland, Oregon. Uh, it's not a pleasure trip. Uh, well, it'll be somewhat some pleasure. Um, get to visit my cousin and my nephew and niece, uh, in Portland. Um, but it's a, uh, it's for kind of a sad situation, um, a memorial service for my cousin's, um, wife who passed away, um, late last year. And, uh, so the, the good part about it is, and uh, you all know, you know, anytime you have something bad happening in your families, uh, there's always a silver lining and some good that comes from it. And that's getting everybody in your family together. And, uh, sometimes sadly, that's the only time we end up getting together is for events like this and sometimes good events like, you know, weddings and that sort of thing. But in this case, it's a, it's kind of a sad situation, but, uh, I'll be, uh, flying most of the day tomorrow up to Portland or over to Portland and uh, the memorial services on Saturday and then flying back on Sunday and then back out again next week, Monday for uh, a trip very similar to the one that I did this week, which was basically just going back and forth between Rochester and New York. But this one is going back and forth between Des Moines, Iowa. Um, I'm going to do some reporting for uh, political reporting for the, uh, the caucuses to see if they have come up with the numbers yet. Uh, the uh, results of the uh, Iowa caucuses. Have they actually gotten any of the final results yet? <laughs> it was like a week ago. I don't know if any of you keep up with p- political things. Probably not. Yes, I'm not getting a lot of feedback from my <laughs> my co-host here. So, well, I never mind. Saying, that one just took me a little bit off. <laughs> I don't. I have no idea. Actually, yeah, yeah they so. they had some kind of issues with the uh, the caucuses um, up there in Iowa. I think the last they number I heard was 87 percent. We're reporting. Uh, we're which, reporting still, still a week and a half that was later. Like yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They tried to institute a new smartphone app that I guess didn't work out very well. Yeah. Oh, well. So I'm going to do my best to try to figure out exactly what, or what went wrong up there in Des Moines. Not just, I'm just kidding. I'm not going to have anything to do with that. Okay. Um, and that's about all I have. So if you want to check out uh, where some of us are and what we're doing, you can always check out the APG community calendar and you can find that on the uh, airline pilot guy website, airlinepilotguy.com slash calendar, or you can uh, sign up for the Slack thing and uh, find out information about that sort of stuff there as well. We'll talk about that at the end of the show. If you're still here. Um, and why don't we quickly talk about the uh, coffee fund? Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Getting late there in uh, jolly England. <laughs> Nick is holding up a clock. <laughs> Okay, hurry up here. Uh, if the coffee fund, the reason why we're singing the uh, Java Dog, Jeff Smith is, is uh, because we have this thing called the coffee fund where you can 
contribute to our cause in a financial way. And we do appreciate all of you who do and have been doing so for such a long time. Uh, Let's see. I've just realized that I really didn't set up for this. So let me see if I can stumble through this quickly. Uh, A couple different ways to do this. Uh, One is the Coffee Fun Classic method. And since the last episode, we have Daniel Kenber and George Leslie. They uh, sent in some contributions via the PayPal uh, the APG Coffee Fund Classic Method. And we also have a different way of doing it, which is uh, you can become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And since the last show, I'm not sure if we have any new patrons. No, I don't think we do. So uh, you can check it out. Uh, that's a great way to do it as well. Patreon.com slash Airline Pilot Guy. All that available the information uh, how you can sign up and be a supporter of the show via airlinepilotguide.com slash coffee you'll be glad you did and we will too captain incoming message all right you'll remember that on a previous episode or a couple of previous episodes we talked about that incident out of atlanta international where the Uh, Embraer 170 was taking off, or 175, uh, and heading up to um, New York City uh, LaGuardia Airport, and they had an issue, uh, a control issue, and I I said, you know, we know somebody who might know something about this pitch trim system on the E-170-175, and his name is Captain Craig, and... Uh, if you've been listening to the show for any time at all, you'll re- recognize him as First Officer Craig and now Captain Craig. And he sent us some audio feedback regarding the pitch trim system on that particular airplane, which is great. We always appreciate it when people take the time to do this. And so I'm going to hit this button right here and we'll listen to Captain Craig. Hey, APGers, it's Captain Craig here. I was just starting to listen to episode 411. When uh, Captain Jeff, Dana, and Captain Nick were uh, all uh, talking about the uh, pitch trim runaway situation on the uh, 175 departing out of Atlanta. And I just want to provide my feedback on uh, subjects inside flight aircraft. Uh, got about, uh, let me take a look here, uh, almost 2,400 hours in the 17175. Um, so for the captain's, uh, originating receiving checklist, which is, uh, after we, uh, start the airplane in the morning or, um, we do a crew swap or there's been maintenance done to the aircraft, any one of those things we have to do originating receiving checklist, make sure everything's in, uh, position and ready to go for, uh, the flights for the day. The, uh, captain has to test, um, all the trims, uh, so the captain's uh, yoke pitch trim switch, the uh, rudder trim switch, the aileron trim switch, and also the backup, excuse me, pitch trim switch, and the FO during his or her Virginia receiving checklist also has to check the uh, FO's pitch trim switch. And uh, what we're checking for is uh, freedom of movement of the uh, surfaces that are moved while trimming. 
So for the pitch trim, it would be the horizontal stabilizer. The whole thing moves up and down. You're also checking that it's going in the proper direction for which way you're uh, pressing the switch up or down. And also you're checking for that the uh, automatic cutout of after three seconds when holding the pitch trim switch. Um, the plane will yell trim, 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 and uh, it'll, it's supposed to stop moving the trim at that after those three seconds of uh, continuous movement and uh so yeah that's uh how we check it uh, on the regime receiving checklist also um you were talking about uh the memory items and whatnot yes we do have a uh, pitch trim runaway um memory item for the uh 17175 but the only actual thing um where at me at Acme Junior is required to memorize for a pitch trim runaway is uh, autopilot trim disconnect button press and hold. So there's a red button on the uh, goat horn, uh, ram horn, yoke, whatever you want to call it, in the 175. And it, uh, it's used for disconnecting the autopilot and also for uh, disconnecting um, the trim. I guess connection, but you're supposed to press and hold it. If you just press it, um, it's not gonna keep that disengagement on the trim actuation. You have to press and hold it. Um, so that's technically the only um, memory item for that pitch trim runway, but there's also something under that on our uh, QRC, the quick uh, reference card that we're supposed to reference after we do a quick, or excuse me, immediate action item or memory item. And for that, it says pitch trim systems one and two cutout buttons push in. So um, I can try and provide pictures to Captain Jeff to put with uh, this feedback of what those buttons look like and where in relation to uh, where in the cockpit they are. Um, and then after uh, you accomplish pushing the pitch trim system uh, one and two cutout buttons in, uh, the uh, QRC tells you to go to... Uh, Basically says just QRC actions complete, go to QRH page, and then list the page number to uh, follow up with the uh, emergency procedure for a uh, pitch trim runaway. Um, and I, I believe I took to a few people about this on the side, but not sure if I provided feedback, but um, I did have this situation happen to me in my uh, upgrade training. Um, where we had a pitch trim runaway situation and uh, can get uh, pretty aggressive pretty quickly if you uh, don't get on top of it right away. Um, so you definitely uh, have to be cognizant of the possibility of this happening. And uh, if you recognize anything that could remotely be um, remotely be something of this nature, like a pitch trim runaway, um, you definitely want to act on it fast and. Uh, do your required immediate action items and um, really just fly the plane and uh, don't rush and just try and uh, do your best to handle the situation. And I think that crew did the best they could uh, in the situation they were given and just glad they got on the ground safely. And uh, hopefully it's a learning moment for everybody. And uh, yeah, so that's just my feedback for uh, pitch trim runaway on the Embraer 170-175 and throwing it back to you, Jeff. Thanks. Have a great day. Bye. Thank you, Craig, for uh, taking the time to record that. And uh, on the screen right now, if you're watching the video, and if you're not, uh, just check out the show notes. And in fact, if you're watching or listening to the 
podcast via your podcast client, you might actually be seeing the picture that I have up on the screen right now for the video. That's the goat horn. Um, uh, it's a yoke that's uh, unusually shaped uh, and has the uh, pitch trim system switches and the pitch trim disconnect switch or autopilot disconnect. I guess that uh, does the same thing. Or uh, the, the switch is used for both. Uh, great explanation of, uh, you know, firsthand information regarding how that whole thing works. I um, always, when I hear stuff from Craig and I get to meet with him and his lovely wife, Ashley, in person, I always think many years ago, well, actually, it wasn't that many years ago, a few years ago, uh, he had contacted me regarding uh, doing um, like a a lecture or presentation at his school. He was going to school at Liberty University. I think that's in North Carolina, right, Steph? Mm, No. No? But I forget exactly where or it is. Or Virginia, maybe. Virginia. Yeah. Um, and uh, he was in the aviation program there, and he was part of the aviation club and wanted me to come out there and, and do something for them. And I never got around to doing it, and I really feel bad about it. Uh, but, you know, he was uh, an undergraduate in uh, in school there, and, you know, his goal was to become a professional airline pilot. And we've been following his journey, you know. All along. I mean, it's it's been within the five years that I've been on the show. So. Yeah. So cool. Uh, mm-hmm. I always uh, appreciate. Uh, Lynchburg University. Or Lynchburg, Lynchburg, Virginia. Virginia. Okay. In, uh, is Liberty University. There you yep. go. Yeah. All right. Well, thanks, Craig. Anybody have anything to add to anything that Craig said? or? No. Excellent explanation, I thought. Okay. No, I, I just don't like the idea of grabbing a ram's horn. <laughs> It could be dangerous. Unsettling. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And slightly mucky. <laughs> All right. There's some big switches on that thing, aren't there? Yeah. Thanks for noticing. <laughs> um. Oh, you're talking about the uh, the yoke. Yeah. Okay. Uh. Let's see. Let's move on to the second item. Uh. This is one that we have uh, passed along at least once, maybe twice. Uh. Peter in New York. Uh. Sent us uh, some audio feedback and let's hear from him hello abg crew this is peter in new york with a piece of feedback for you uh following on to a uh a piece of feedback somebody had recently where they asked if you would fly the uh, 737 max if uh, you had it in your fleet and you were asked to pilot it i'm going to expand that further imagine that your fleet had every single kind of commercial aircraft made you just had this gigantic fleet that had everything from, I don't know, Lockheed Constellations all the way up to the uh, A380. And uh, you were told you could pick any kind, any kind of airplane to fly commercially for the rest of your career. And there's no switching back. So once you choose the plane, that's what you're going to captain for the rest of your career. Which one do you choose? you got a lot to choose from. Make your choices. And uh, tailwinds and all that stuff. Tailwinds and all that kind of stuff. <laughs> okay. Very specific. So that voice, that kind of sounds familiar to me. Does it to you, Nick? Uh, yeah, I think I've, I've heard it before. On a movie I saw when I was about 14. Huh. X-ray Delta-1, this is Mission Control. Roger, you're 1930. 
We concur with your plan to replace number one unit to check fault prediction. I think it's the same guy. I advise you, however, yep. that our I'm pretty sure. That what was this from? Uh, Space Odyssey, 2001. Wow. In when did that act, that movie actually come out? I, I think I was still in California. Uh, so it must have been 1971 or something like that when that movie came out. Yeah, I was a, a young teenager. So, uh, um, yeah, it would only have been uh, late 60s, early 70s. So yeah. I, I, I'm going with late 60s, but I'd have okay. to Google it to be sure. But I'm, he, His voice hasn't changed much, has it? No, it hasn't. That's <laughs> <laughs> very good. Yeah, very cool. So, uh, okay, um, his question was what airliner um, would we fly if we, uh, what was this question again? So basically you have, uh, your company has a fleet of everything. Mm -hmm. Airliners. Right. What would your choice be? Oh, so from the, the, the Fokers to the McDonnell Douglases to the Airbuses to the Boeings. Exactly. Hmm. He didn't really specify current or, you know, oh. older aircraft. So you've got Could your be anything, choice. Huh? It's wide open. It could be a wide open. Nineteen sixty-eight, by the way. Oh, thank you. Did you figure that out, or somebody else? No, I just looked it up. Oh, good. Thank you. Google. Ah, Google is your IMDb. friend. IMDb. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, who wants to tackle that one first? Uh, Me. I don't know. That. Uh, go <laughs> ahead, Dan. <laughs> my my favorite favorite aircraft of all time, other than the MD eighty eight, which obviously I would prefer to stay on forever, uh, would be the L ten eleven. That would be my first pick of any airplane that I'd ever want to fly at any airline. Now, if that's it, 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 it any airline ever uh, for current aircraft, ooh, doesn't yeah. have to be current. Yeah, well, it, I mean, I was thinking, you know, if I was going to answer this question on a multi-level, what aircraft at my current carrier would I choose would be my favorite aircraft to fly? Uh, as long as I get a paycheck, that's really it. <laughs> it's really nothing. I'm, I'm, you know, with 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 our aircraft retiring, there is nothing that I'm very particularly gung ho uh, about flying. I know I don't want to fly the Boeing unless I have no choice. Uh, the seven three seven. Uh, so I'd probably say the 757, but I wouldn't want to fly international. So, yeah. Ugh. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. <laughs> I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. <laughs> What's the problem? <laughs> I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. <laughs> what are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Oh, no. What's yeah. going to happen? That just, I just, I thought, oh, I, I, I think I have movie. another clip. It's been so long oh, since I've seen movie. it. I need to watch it again. It is, it is a great movie. That and um, Blade Runner, two of my absolute yeah, all-time favorites. Yeah. I have seen Blade Runner recently, but I need to watch 2001 Space Odyssey again. Um, good choice, oh, Dana. Pan Am. Pan Am. They, they're in there. And that's what disappointed me when Pan Am went out of business. Uh, the bloke climbs on a shuttle to fly to the moon, and it's a Pan Am shuttle. I mean, uh, how cool was that? Could have been. Could have been. Yeah. Um, yeah, I have to agree with uh, with uh, Dana. Uh, I actually got to fly the uh, TriStar, which I find uh, yeah. I consider myself very blessed that I got to do that. And it's as good and better than all the wonderful things that you've heard about it. Um, uh, you've got to think outside the box a bit. So, okay. Well, let me think about, you know what I was thinking would be really cool to fly that Mira 
um, uh, you know, the six engine high wing looks a lot like the C five that I have behind me, but it's a lot bigger. Um, the, uh, Oh, that great big transport. Yeah. The, the uh, one twenty four. I think it's the uh, Antonov. Antonov. You'd like to fly that for the rest of your career. No. Is that what he has said? <laughs> you have to do that for the rest <laughs> yeah. of my career. Oh, never mind. No. You have to be on it for the rest of your oh, career. Never mind. No, I don't want to do that. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll stick to the TriStar. <laughs> yeah. You and I both, Jeff. I mean, yeah. we, I guess we really just have similar tastes if you yeah. think about it. Yeah. Um, I'll go. Uh-huh. I'll go because mine's yeah, go, relatively easy. I don't have a, um, you know, without a jet background, it's hard to have a good frame of reference to answer that question. But um, certainly, there's been points um, in my medicine career where uh, times have been frustrating, or I've been frustrated with the current uh, um, environment or landscape. And, you know, that's it. I'm just gonna power through my hours and go be an airline pilot. And at that point, I would be happy to fly whatever. Whatever they Whatever. said you could fly. Or yeah. DC three in pink pajamas, that's what I remember when I was unemployed. <laughs> even uh, even the CRJ two hundred. Wow. I know. Well, <laughs> Fortunately times are good right now at work. So uh, yeah. yeah. Haven't good. been entertaining those thoughts too good. much recently. Just occasionally. Well, you know, you'd be a great airline pilot. Ah, uh, thank you. You would. That'd be cool. That. Yeah. Um Okay. Um Nick. Nick, yeah. Okay. Uh, We're going to go back into a different era of flying now. Okay. And I'm going to fly a balloon. Would you like No, no balloon. He's going to fly that thing that, like, you... It no. looks like it's an umbrella and it like pumps up and down <laughs> a couple of times. And then you have to jump off a cliff and it goes an airplane? I don't think so. It's not a jet. <laughs> no, it's very similar. No, it's not. It's a Boeing. It's a Boeing 314 Clipper. Oh, yeah. And I'm going to have oh, yeah. a crew of 11. Uh, it's nine on the flight deck and two stewards. And Jeff would like to be one I'm of volunteering. I want to. I want to oh, be really? on your crew, man. Excellent. We're going to drift around the world, and so uh, awesome. we're only going to fly by day VMC. And uh, every afternoon, we're going to land and taxi into some beautiful lagoon. And there's going to be a gorgeous little hotel there, and we're going to have a captain's table. And all the passengers are going to sit there, and they're going to be full of diplomats and authors and millionaires and interesting people. And we're going to sit down and have a lovely meal while the guys gas up the airplane and polish it and prepare it for the next day. And then I'll stroll out in the morning in my best uniform and clamber on board, and the engines will already be running and everything will be set up. And I'll climb into the captain's seat and open up those throttles and just gently ease off for another day's flying. I think that would be perfect. I would quit my job right now. If that <laughs> would actually something that could happen. <laughs> there you go. I'm serious. I'd I would, be with you, Jeff. I would yeah, retire. You'd, you'd be, Nick would be taking all of us uh, with him. Uh, that would be wonderful. Absolutely and then we did, wonderful. Did, did, just have a mobile studio on the, uh, on the, on the clipper. Uh, yeah. Uh, the radio operator would, patch you into the hf net <laughs> so you have to <laughs> wow. you have to do it by morse code that's awesome hmm. yeah great pick <laughs> back in 1936 it went for five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. right now how much for it now <laughs> do they even have i don't think they I, have any um actually flying existing I anymore know. i don't know i don't think so no yeah i, I think they're I all going any 
I think they're the I mean, only one that they have that's even close is that one in that uh, in in uh, Ireland somewhere. There's a big uh, museum. Yeah, there's but it's a, a full size replica. Yeah, in the Foyne's Flying Mu- Flying Boat Museum in right. Limerick uh, in Ireland, but uh, I don't know of one that's. Uh, uh, there you go. Yes, Tanya, well, you can only, you can be in next fantasy with us. <laughs> they only built twelve. Is that right? No. The what? I'm, yeah, they, they didn't build twelve. Too many. I don't know how many, but. Um, that just reminds us, or yes, my, they only built 12, yeah. that reminds me of the story that uh, Nick did a wonderful plane tale about the um, the going the the wrong way around or something. Oh, the, the long way, the around, long yeah. way around. Yeah. Uh, uh, a, a wonderful story, true story, and uh, based it on a, um, a book that um, I don't read a lot of of things, but I did buy this book, and it's a wonderful book. Um, the long way around, I believe, is the name of it, and. Uh, so if you haven't had a chance to check it out, please do. Great story. Captain Ford, I believe, was the uh, pilot in command of that. That's uh, exactly right. Well remembered. Yeah. Well, it was a pretty easy name. <laughs> but thank you. No, none of the uh, 314s survived beyond 1951. Oh, so, man. Oh, wow. There you go. Uh, That's a shame. You sure he wasn't Captain General Motors? Yeah, I don't think so. That was a different oh, one. Okay. <laughs> oh, Captain Chrysler. Yeah. All right. Well, great question, and uh, that leads us into the part of the show, the best part of the show, which, of course, everybody knows, is the old pilot's plane tales. And this oh, week's going to be a quiz at the end of this. Oh, uh, is there? We have to pay attention to that. Yeah. Okay. Uh, All right. Everybody, uh, I'll, I'll stay right here and pee my pants. Get your uh, notepad ready and your your pen or pencil and start taking notes because here we go. I'm going to hit the button right now. Old pilots plane tales, the things on your wings. I was a little surprised to get so much positive feedback following my previous aerodynamic story about transonic flight called Sounds Like a Drag. So if you're up for more, then pin your ears back. I know Steph loves a window seat, and I'm sure that many others of you are fond of gazing out of your airliner at the world passing by. I, for one, would rather have a good meal and watch a movie, but I wonder how many of you have glanced at the wing and seen bips and bobs stuck there and pondered on what they're for. Well, ponder no longer. Let's start with a little hairy dynamics and talk about the boundary layer. The first thing to get clear in our minds is that air is a fluid, Well, it's not like you can swim in it, even though Steph clearly tries whenever she jumps out of a perfectly serviceable aircraft, strange girl. But its behaviour is tied to fluid dynamics, and it has a certain amount of viscosity. So when passing around our aircraft, specifically the wings, a particle of air directly adjacent to the surface will be pulled along with it at approximately the same speed particles further away will also be pulled along but at a slightly slower speed. Further and further away the particles are affected less and less until when far enough away they aren't affected at all. The air in between this point and the surface is called the boundary layer. Its official definition is that region of flow in which the speed is less than 99% of free stream flow. 
Now, boundary layers come in differing depths depending on their type. A laminar boundary layer is very thin and smooth, only seven hundredths of an inch, a little under two millimetres thick. We often like to have a laminar flow over our aircraft as it creates very little surface friction drag, but it's hard to maintain, particularly over a wing. At some point, the laminar boundary layer will transition to a turbulent one. The turbulent boundary layer is ten times the thickness of the laminar one and has a much stronger change in velocity near the surface. To reduce drag, it's beneficial to delay the change to turbulent flow for as long as possible, but the point at which the change occurs is called the transition point, the position of which depends on several factors. The first is surface condition. The laminar layer is extremely sensitive to surface irregularities. Generally speaking, any irregularity which can be felt by the hand will cause a transition of turbulent flow which will spread downstream, causing a marked increase in friction drag. So wings are kept as clean and shiny as possible. The speed of the flow and size of the object are the second factor, and I group those together because they relate to Reynolds' number. No, no, it's not his phone number, but a ratio of inertial to viscous forces within a fluid. I like to think of Reynolds as a Victorian sewage engineer, but his work in devising how best to get our poo down a pipe does indeed relate to more exotic applications. In practice, we can say that on a wing of a given thickness, the higher the speed of flow, the earlier the transition to turbulence will occur, and therefore the more friction drag will occur. The final factor is the adverse pressure gradient. As air passes over the top of a wing, it first encounters falling pressure due to the curvature of the wing, but usually after passing the point of maximum thickness, where the lowest pressure is found, the pressure will start to rise again. So initially, airflow will see a positive pressure gradient, which then turns into an adverse pressure gradient. And it has been found that laminar flow just can't be maintained, without mechanical assistance that is, when the pressure in the direction of flow starts rising. One of the effects of surface friction drag on the boundary layer is to reduce its velocity and therefore its kinetic energy. On a curved wing, meeting the adverse pressure gradient reduces boundary layer energy. Eventually, approaching the trailing edge of the wing, the boundary layer stops moving, and beyond that point, the flow is reversed. This is the point where the airflow breaks away from the surface of the wing and is known as the separation point. Beyond the separation point, the airflow becomes chaotic. It's a turbulent, eddying mess that no longer provides lift. If we increase the angle of attack of a wing, the pressure drop on the top of the wing also increases, and the amount of lift increases. Yay! Great! The problem is that the adverse pressure gradient also increases, which draws the separation point away from the trailing edge further and further up the wing. Eventually, the amount of lift the wing can produce is so small 
that it can no longer support the weight of the aircraft and the wing is said to have stalled. If we plot a graph of lift against angle of attack, we will see the slope of the lift curve decline and when the critical angle is reached, it turns into a downward slope. Of interest, in subsonic flight, the breakdown of airflow over a particular wing will occur at the same critical angle, except at high Reynolds number. It's also worth noting that even after the critical angle has been passed, the wing will give some lift, even up to 90 degrees angle of attack. The pattern of a stall over the surface of a wing will depend on wing design. And remember that it's always preferable for an aircraft to be designed to pitch nose down at the critical angle and not upwards, which would exacerbate the stall. It is good if a wing stalls progressively from the root to the tip. This allows early stall buffet from separated turbulent airflow to be felt over the tail surfaces, giving early warning. It retains aileron effectiveness up to the critical angle and avoids large rolling moments that occur if one tip stalls before another. If a design is prone to tip stalling, there are design features that can assist, such as washout, where the wing is twisted so that the tip area has a lower angle of incidence when compared with the root, making it more likely for the root to stall first. Another option might be to attach a sharp leading edge device to force the wing root to stall first. Not elegant, but effective. A straightforward rectangular wing will usually stall from the root because wingtip vortices cause a reduction in effective angle of attack near the tips. A tapered wing will aggravate tip stalling because the taper causes a lower Reynolds number at the tip. The stall of a highly tapered wing is marked by aileron buffet and wing drop. No tail buffet, a lack of pitch down and poor aileron effectiveness, so not favourable. An elliptical wing has a constant coefficient of lift distribution across the wing span, so a stall progresses uniformly across the wing, allowing it to reach very high levels of lift before the stall. However, aileron control is lost fairly early. A swept wing performs in a similar way to a wing with taper, so not ideal. Whether it is to delay the change from laminar to turbulent boundary layer in order to reduce drag or to alter the movement of the separation point to delay or control the progression of a stall, there are a number of tricks up an aircraft designer's sleeve. These are the things on your wings that you might want to look out for in the future. So after the next bit of information, you will be well armed to bore the poor lady in the middle seat with your knowledge. One of the most common devices on the wing are vortex generators. These are small tabs or veins stuck onto the surface of the wing. They do what it says on the tin. They create small vortices, which are rotating spirals of airflow trailing back from the tab. They create the vortex by being set at a slight angle to the airflow and the swirling air that they create 
brings high-energy air from above into the boundary layer, re-energizing it and delaying its separation. The upside of this is that it allows flight at a lower speed, great for takeoff and landing, etc. Aftermarket kits for the Cessna 172 can simply be glued on and claim to reduce the stalling speed by some 8%. The downside is that laminar flow can't exist past a vortex generator, which has implications for a commercial airliner, but for a Cessna it probably only knocks a couple of knots off the speed. I might point out that a new generation of miniature vortex generators developed by the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm has found that under certain flow conditions, miniature generators could significantly delay the transition from laminar to turbulent flow. Their work continues. An aircraft might just have a few vortex generators to influence a particular part of the wing, or a whole line of them, like on the Hawker Harrier or the Boeing 737. Should you see a fairly large flat plate fixed onto the wing's leading edge, in line with the airflow and often extending down the wing for a short distance, normally not more than a third of the cord, but occasionally the whole cord, you've spotted a wing fence. It's not a white picket fence, but a solid metal barrier, often several inches or a number of centimetres high. You can thank Wolfgang Lieber for this invention, as he designed the first one to go onto the Messerschmitt Bf 109. The stall on this fighter initiated at the wing route and cross-span flow very near the leading edge then travelled outwards towards the wingtip at high speed. The result of this aerodynamic behaviour was that the entire wing stalled at essentially the same time. Very dangerous. Uh, installation of a wing fence prevented the cross-span flow, thus eliminating the stall problem. So... What's cross-span flow and why is it a problem? Well, imagine looking at the trailing edge of a wing in flight and being able to see the pressure patterns that the wing produces. Above the wing, there'll be a lower pressure than below the wing. Nature abhors a vacuum, or even a little low pressure. So air from below the wing will be drawn towards the wingtip to try and get around it and into the area above the wing to even out the pressure distribution. This means that the air below the wing will continually try to move towards the wingtip and the air above will want to move away. This is cross-span or span-wise flow and it can have unfortunate results, the primary one being the creation of a very large vortex at the wingtip which creates significant amounts of drag, commonly referred to as induced drag, lift-dependent drag, or vortex drag. Spanwise flow not only occurs externally, but in the boundary layer as well. The boundary layer will be dragged towards the wingtip where it can pull and lose energy, so not only can a wing fence improve the drag coefficient, but it can also improve the stalling characteristics, and controllability at high angles of attack. 
If the wing fence also creates a vortex that trails down the wing, it will perform the same function as the barrier, but in an aerodynamic manner. You're most likely to see fences on swept wing aircraft, but the DH-6 Twin Otter is a classic example of them being used on a straight wing. Other features can perform the same function, such as the engine pylons that hold wing-mounted engines, and there are even aircraft with tail-mounted engines that use small versions of the same devices called vortilons. You can spot them on the McDonnell Douglas DC-9 and, by extension, Captain Jess Mad Dog, where they are used to increase low-speed lift and induce a strong nose-down pitching moment in a normal stall. Also take a look at Pilot Pip's Love, the Hawker 800, and the Learjet 45 as well. A more elegant device might be a wing dog-tooth extension or leading-edge cuff, where there is a zigzag discontinuity along the wing leading edge that gives rise to a vortex that trails over the wing. There are many ways to skin a cat. Nowadays, it's very common to see winglets on airliners, which serve to reduce the strength of spillage around the wingtip, thereby dramatically reducing the size of the wingtip vortex and the drag that it produces but helps to remove the pressure difference that can be perceived above and below the wing. The original concept of this goes all the way back to 1897, when the English engineer and polymath Frederick Lanchester patented wing-end devices. The designer of the Heinkel HE-162 jet fighter used drooped wingtips that had been named after him, and the Hörner tips can be found on many aircraft. More recently, Airbus used wingtip fences on the A320 and have now moved to blended winglets that have a smooth junction to reduce the interference drag that occurs at sharp corners. The very latest generation of airliner has raked winglets, which increase the effective aspect ratio as well as diminishing the tip vortices. Of course, I could go into blowing and sucking, but you're unlikely to see much of that whilst commuting across America on your 737. This form of boundary layer control is more often found in military jets, where a stagnant boundary layer is either sucked away through a permeable wing surface or re-energized by blowing high-energy air through ducts across aerodynamic surfaces. There are indeed many other exotic concepts that have yet to make it into common use, and I haven't even touched on high-lift devices such as plain, split, fowler, double or triple slotted flaps or hinged and slotted slats, just to name a few. As well as all that, there are the contributions that canards and leading-edge extensions have made, but that, as they say, is another subject. Okay, molecular perpendicular to the boundary layer. Okay, Jeff, you're first. Uh, yeah, oh, go ahead. Uh, how deep? Is laminar flow band the laminar flow boundary layer, um, please? In 
hundredths of an inch. Hmm. Can I do uh, the metric? Uh, yeah, you can do the metric. Um, uh, five milliliters or something like that. <laughs> I know it was a millimeter. millimeter. <laughs> anybody? Any, anybody? I don't know. Like, uh, that was at the very beginning. Um, yeah. Okay. Yeah, uh, Dana knows. Go ahead, Dana. <laughs> I know everything. That was my transition <laughs> to my hands free, so I go down season. Seven hundredth of an inch or two mil. Two mil. Uh, I was close. Yeah. Okay, okay Steph. Your question. Uh, what did Mr. Reynolds do? He came up with a number. A number. <laughs> no, no. It was his occupation. I have oh, no idea. He made foil. He was a Victorian sewage engineer. Oh, <laughs> sure. Uh, I thought that was Dana. John Crapper. Yeah. No. <laughs> different chap. <laughs> Um, Dana, um, what is the airflow like behind the separation point? Separated. Yeah, well done. Turbulent. Turbulent. Thank you. And uh, Liz, oh, Liz isn't there. What the heck is well done? Going on here. I don't know where that's coming from. (laughs) It's it's not as funny as when the um, what was it? The phone ringing or the beeping in the hotel room? <laughs> that was a great episode. <laughs> oh, please. <laughs> Where is that noise coming Where from? Where is it coming from? <laughs> we finally figured it out. Yeah. It took yeah, us some time, but. Yeah. Quite a while. Oh. Hey. <laughs> Leave us alone. Uh, now, uh, hopefully that will have put an end to any compliments concerning plain tales about aerodynamics and. We can move on to more interesting things. Well, we need to, of course. I mean, there was something about other forms of airflow at the end there that I think people might be, oh, never mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 yeah. I, I saw you have a grin there. Oh, there's yeah. something about um, suck, bang, something blow. About a gen, yeah, something about a gen engine, which jet is sucks, please, bang, blow. Yeah, yep. nothing to do with sewage engineering. Nope. Yeah, I just wanted to. And I figured out what that crickets. sound is. What is that? Crickets. No, no, not that sound. The DDTD. Oh, what is that? It's my session expiration because I've been looking at flights to uh, Cuba. Oh, okay. So okay. it's your fault, not mine. Thank it you. It is all my fault. Uh, I'm glad to yeah. blame you. <laughs> I just found out today because our schedules came out that I'm going to Cuba for to go scuba diving at the Garden of the Queens. Oh, did our schedule come out mm-hmm. today? Yes, it did. Oh, I need to check and see uh, what I got. Oh, don't look. I'm already jealous. Oh, okay. Good. Dana's already checked your schedule. It's fine. Yeah, let it's you know. fine. It's all right, yeah, huh? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's not too bad. All right. Uh, let's see. Well, thank you very much for that, Captain Nick. And uh, let's see. Let's keep on moving. We only have about uh, 36-ish minutes left in our show or so. Well, we should so, be able to get through 10 of these then. Probably 15. not. Let's be optimistic. Yeah, here. we'll get them all. <laughs> Just have to spend a couple Three seconds minutes each. On each. Come yeah. on. Mush, mush. Okay, where were we? Um, eight. Number three. Dana. Oh, we need, let's do eight first. Okay. Um, our producer oh, has good. told us to do this. Um, and I think that's a great idea. Uh, Jen Niffer, um, many of you are familiar with the in the APG community know who she is. Uh, she works at a um mid-sized medium-sized medium-sized midwest airport airport yeah yes got it and uh she sent us in some audio she also does a wonderful blog tales from the terminal and she sent us in some audio feedback so let's listen to jen hello apg crew and community it's jen niffer here with uh some overdue feedback 
first of all, I want to thank you, Jeff, for uh, giving my blog, Tales from the Terminal, a shout out a few episodes ago. Thanks so much for reading and for sharing it. I really appreciate it. Uh, For listeners who may not know me, I work for a medium-sized airport in the Midwest, and I write about my aviation adventures, many of which take place right there where I work. Speaking of which, there's been discussion recently regarding the practice of naming an airport after someone uh, as a way of honoring that person. This actually happened to my airport a few years ago, and while it can be a nice gesture, I think it's important to keep in mind Uh, the considerable cost that can be incurred in making such a change. So some of the things that have to be updated when you change the name of an airport, all new signage inside and outside the terminal. So that's going to include your street signs, your parking lot and airport facility signage, uh, you know, the big monument signs that you have at the main entrances and so on. You also have to change the name on all the shuttles and buses. Also on all the airfield and operations vehicles. Also on all the ARF and emergency equipment. So that's a a lot of um, name changing that has to be done. And then also you'll need all new letterhead, business cards, promotional materials, and so on. And then ultimately, eventually, uh, the name will have to change on all of the CIDA badges. And those are the badges that people wear uh, to gain access to the secure areas at the airport. Now those expire every few years, so the name uh, generally gets changed just in the course of changing those out, but still it's just one more consideration. Um, In our case, uh, the idea to change the name of the airport uh, came from someone in the government, and uh, it was not something that the airport had planned for. And we certainly didn't know anything about the fact that this was coming until uh, I think the CEO got a phone call about it. Um, So we did not budget for this. And that's a lot of cost, uh, both just in terms of actual money that it takes to make these changes, but just in the time and effort it takes to make these changes. So uh, when you hear about a proposed name change, if the airport doesn't seem all that excited about it, uh, this could be why. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of cost. And I will say that in our case, I think the government did eventually pitch in some money to sort of offset uh, some of the cost for us. Um, so lastly, I have a question about jump seating. Um, last summer, I was riding on the employee shuttle with a couple of pilots who had just finished a trip. And they were talking amongst themselves and and saying that um, they had a jump seater on their last flight and they wished that all jump seaters could be like him because he didn't make them feel like they were on a check ride. And it got me to wondering about jump seat etiquette. Um, Is there anything that you do to try to put the crew at ease? Uh, What about when you have a jump seater riding with you? Is there anything you wish they would or wouldn't do? Um, as always, thank you so much for all you do. I love the show. Keep up the good work. And I I truly appreciate all the effort you put into keeping the accuracy rating right there at 50%. Thanks again. Take care. Bye. Hey, Jen, we do our best. (laughs) Yeah.
which is apparently not good enough. Um, Jen, great, uh, great feedback. Thank you for taking the time to send that in. Uh, yeah, you know, that's something that uh, people really don't think about when you start changing names of airports, how, how many things have to be changed and how expensive that is. Um, so uh, that's great feedback. Thank you very much for that. And uh, the jump seat thing, that is a, a great subject. And uh, Danny, you want to start with the, the jump seat etiquette kind of uh, question? Yeah, sure. Or? Sure. Uh, jump seat etiquette in my in my book is is being fully respectful to uh, the crew that's working, especially the captain. And it's never a, a, a right to sit in the jump seat. It's a privilege. So that's the way I always uh, approach it. And uh, certainly um, whenever I'm asking permission to ride in, in, in a flight crew's jump seat, I always ask. And I always have all my uh, information ready to present the captain, i.e. my medical certificate, my, uh, my FAA license, as well as my company ID. Um, so that's what I think about etiquette. And, and, and uh, certainly, uh, you know, I like being approached that way as well. Um, I try not to be mean towards anybody ever, uh, even if they're really not nice to me. Like, they, you know, I'm on the, booked on the jump seat. Um, okay, you are? You really, you're booked on the jump seat. It's your jump seat. <laughs> I kind of, I kind of, you know, <clears throat> give them a little bit of, of, of um, feedback in a, in a funny way, you know, um, just kind of not being mean about it. And, you know, I always look at the ID and say, okay, we're going to welcome on board. I always try to make my jump seater welcome on board. Uh, I always let them know that, you know, they can, you know, do what they need to do to be, um, you know, comfortable on the aircraft, wherever they need to sit. If they want to sit in the jump seat, they can. If not, you know, in the back, wherever they're comfortable and to help them out with their bags the best I can. So, you know, I'm very courteous towards the jump seater, and, and I expect the same back. One of the things that really irritates me the most is when I have a jump seater that seems to think that they can hang out in the cockpit and just keep on talking and talking, and while we're trying to prepare the aircraft, uh, you know, come in, sign in for the jump seater, you know, let me know you're there, and just disappear, please. Yeah, I don't want to see you again. I want you to be invisible. I want you to be invisible, and, uh, you know, it, the, the the my biggest pet peeve is is a jump seater that sits there and, and talks um, below ten thousand feet while we're taxiing out, um, or you know, you know, just blatant violation of the uh, sterile cockpit rules. Um, it, you know, if if you ask the question, great. You know, if we're trying to you know interact with you, great. But if I'm trying to do my job and, and keep the aircraft safe, and, and generally speaking, I, I you know I really do observe the sterile cockpit below ten thousand. So, uh, you know, I, I just ask that same respect. So that's one of my bi biggest pet peeves. And, and show up looking professional. You know, that, that, that we're all professionals here. Just look, look professional. So that's, that's my take on, on jump seat etiquette and what, you know, things I try to do to, to make my, my uh, jump seater feel comfortable, what I try to do when I show up into the flight deck, and then, you know, what, I, what couple things, you know, she asks about what we don't like. Right. Be professional. Um understand what the dress code is don't don't push the boundaries or limits of that and don't make don't put us in that position to look at you and you're wearing you know not business casual um because it's a little bit higher standard than if you're just non-revving non-revving you can almost wear anything these days but uh if you're going to ride the jumpsuit the cockpit jumpsuit take the time to actually look like you're in business casual and don't make us make a call like okay no you know you you need to wear something 
nicer than that. Um, and you know, once you've introduced yourself and we said, okay, great. Um, uh, you know, if you, if you get a seat in the back, uh, you know, you're more than welcome to do that. If you uh, want to, you know, stay up here with us in the cockpit, that's fine as well. But after you've made that introduction, you've shown us all the documentation, move out of the way, uh, and don't, don't stand there and blocking the, the cockpit door and, uh, you know, because we like to, some of us like to interact with the passengers coming on board and that kind of thing. And uh, we don't want somebody just standing there um, blocking access to that. Or I, I don't, at least. Yeah, I have a question out of curiosity for those who are uh, jump seating. Do they normally come down um, early on in the boarding process or are they one of the last people to? Because it just seems like if they're. It, it, it really depends. They're kind of early. There might not be, especially on smaller aircraft, there's not a lot of place to. I try to go on the early side and then just disappear after sure. I've you know, shown all my stuff. As Dana mentioned, you have all your stuff ready to go. Don't assume that they're not going to want to see it because sure. they do require to see it. And, you know, and it's some, about asking permission. Yeah. Too. And it's asking and say, hello, I, you know, sir, I would like to ride your jump seat if that's okay. Don't just assume that you're going to get it uh, because that's one of those things where, you know, the, the captain can say no. Uh, so, you know, just have that respect and, and ask, uh, permission to do it. And then when you're in the jump seat, you know, if, if you don't have a seat in the back to move out of the cockpit, um, try not to, you know, carry on conversation unless somebody's asking you a question about something. Just try to, as, as Dana said, just be a fly on the wall. Just try to not make them forget that you're even there. Um, but anyway, that's my two. And, and speaking of the jump seat, I did have an FAA inspector this past week. I forgot to mention that. Oh, good. Well, I'm sure yeah, you excelled. So, oh, they're Max. always there to they're always there to help. So yeah, but, uh, he he uh, he was he was actually very courteous. He kind of disappeared. He said, "I'm briefed. Don't you know you don't have to go through the, the, this. I, I do this all the time." I said, "Okay, mm -hmm. so you have no questions. You you need a headset?" And he said, "Yep, I'm, I'm all set. I've got everything." And uh, he just disappeared. And then he showed up just a few minutes before departure and, you know, allows me to, like like you, Jeff, I like to get up and interact with the passengers, especially mm -hmm. go back and, in person and, and talk to the first class folks, not, you know, being elitist, but I can't talk to everybody in the airplane, uh, you know, face to face. So I'll kind of stand up there and folks in, uh, of course, uh, the uh, stretching their legs with a little extra leg room. And in the com in economy comfort, I think it's called. Uh, they hear me, and then I go back and I make my PA. And he was nowhere to be found until until just a couple minutes before we push. You guys all set? You're all done? Great. Sat down, and uh, you know, really was was actually a pleasure to have him in in the, in the cockpit. So yeah, um, just really uh, perfect jump seater. Perfect jump seater. Speaking and he wasn't even a company guy. Speaking of jump seating. <laughs> I was just looking at the flight that I'm trying to non-rev on tomorrow. You know, I'm hoping to be able mm -hmm. to do some editing of the show on the long flight out to Portland, Oregon. Well, guess what? The no, hope killers rev. are in abundance, Dana. It went from a whole bunch of seats available to now it looks like if I want a non-rev on the flight tomorrow morning, um, it's not going to happen. So I'm. It looks like I'm going to have to jump seat on this stupid thing. How's the jump seat? Too open. Too yeah. open. Uh, so a 7.5 or? A 7.6 W. Oh, wow. Mm. Yeah. Plenty of room in that thing. Yeah, but see, I'm not going to be able to do Edit. any audio editing. No, that's very true. So 
That's the downside. Does not follow any list of um, professional things to do while occupying the drum seat. Unfortunately, no. That's uh, an electronic device that uh, is not allowed to be used in the cockpit. So Mm -hmm. nope. It's funny. I'm looking at the same thing. I'm kind of well. I'm I'm talking on online here. I'm Mm -hmm. I'm researching whether we can jump seat into Cuba. I'm not sure that we can. I don't know. I don't know. So I'm kind of doing some research. All right. Well, hopefully you can. Anyway, getting back to the show. Um, thanks again, Jen, for the um the information regarding run or airport name changes and all the things that we don't really think about. And uh, hopefully. Hopefully we answered, uh, I'm not sure exactly what that, uh, what those guys meant about, you know, feeling like it was a check ride. Maybe the person was asking all kinds of questions about things that like they were a check pilot or something. I don't know. Not sure exactly what she was meaning. I guess it depends on who they were flying with. Maybe they were flying with someone like a FAA inspector and in the past, their experience has been not like the one that Dana just had. I don't know. So, Dana, we were talking uh, about um, this subject on an earlier episode regarding the fact that the Max, they're trying to get everything recertified and retested and get it back up in the air. And one of our listeners, Steve, sent us an email, said he remembered something about rebranding the Max brand uh, last year. And he sent us a, a link to an article regarding that. So you want to cover that? I would love to, actually. Uh, Some photos here showing a uh, Ryanair aircraft uh, that has had the 737 MAX that was painted on the side of it um, from that to Dash 8200. So uh, has, uh, reading the article specifically, it says uh, Boeing 737 MAX to be delivered to Ryanair has the name MAX drop from the livery. Uh, further fueling speculation that the manufacturing airlines will seek to rebrand the trouble plane once it's given the all clear fly again. And uh, <clears throat> Ryanair has 135 of these uh, 737 MAX models on order, the first five of which are due to delivery in the autumn once regulators have just declared the plane safe. Um, and it talks a little bit more about the, about the MAX. And really, it's just it, it it's just a speculation based on what is uh, being painted on the Ryan aircraft uh, with the eighty two hundred with the Max um, being removed, and certainly, uh, certainly the uh, Boeing, I'm sure, is looking at that because uh, with all the negative press that they've had with this aircraft, uh, they may want to change it from the Max to another 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 uh, branding on it. So. More to be seen on this, I think. Um, just until we actually get the formal notification, the, the only indication we have is that Ryan aircraft that's painted with Dash eighty two hundred. Yeah, which would would be nothing. You know, it, it really is nothing like I've ever seen Boeing ever have on the side of the airplane. Well, I think that, um, and, and I think they mentioned in the article that that's something that's airline specific. That Boeing doesn't mm-hmm. require that you know airlines put on you know, whatever model of airplane that they're flying. Um, but uh, they, I think that uh, Ryanair has been referring to that model as the 737-8200 yeah. um, for, for a while. So it kind of was just a natural thing to put on there. And uh, most people that you know, are in the know understand that that's one of the Max 8s, um, 200 series. But yeah, I don't know if that's going to, 
going to be the official designation or if that's just something that Ryanair is doing to try to kind of alleviate the consumer's concern about the uh, max. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Yeah. Alleviate the consumer's concern or disambiguously uh, conceal the fact that it was a max? That's the same thing, Nick. You're, you're using the same, different words for the same thing. I'm trying to yeah, say, okay. if Nick is more drunk, I'm more tired. I both. About the, uh, just the general flying public out there. If you ask people boarding an aircraft, oh, what type of aircraft is this that you're getting oh, on? You know, 200. <laughs> if they could take a look out the window, look at it, and I, if they don't know about aviation, they're not going to know what aircraft it is no. just by looking at it. So, 95% of the people get on an airplane have no clue. I own like ninety percent of the pilots that are on the airplane have no crew. Yeah, well, they all look the same to me. Yourself, Jeff. <laughs> okay, uh, wh- which is the next one, uh, Steph? Four. Four, Steph. Would you, since you know what we're supposed to be doing here, why don't you take this? I one? will happily take control here. Okay, take control. Uh, <laughs> so this is the article from uh, the Daily Mail. I was confusing my articles earlier. Ah. I'm sorry. This is what happens when I do work in advance. Then I just get things screwed up. Typical doctor. Don't yeah. know what they're talking about. No clue. Anyway, um, <laughs> interesting article here again, um, slight medical slant to it. Um, this one, the headline is four passengers knocked out and two need CPR on flight from hell. Dun, dun, dun. Updates at 11. Um, knocked out? Knocked out. Wow. Two need CPR. Knock so, yourself out, guys. <laughs> this was a riot air flight from um, Budapest to Edinburgh. And not a whole lot of details here, although um, apparently at the uh, as they were boarding, there was a passenger who heard a, uh, f- a fire alarm going off. So perhaps, uh, you know. Pre-flight checks. <laughs> exactly. So the fire alarm was going off while we were boarding, but the flight took off as planned. Um, we got People. up into the sky, and about an hour in, the first person collapsed. She was only 17 and needed CPR. Then the second person went down, then me, then a fourth. I'm not sure how he knew another person went down after him. Um, yeah, because he was, was obviously John unconscious. 27 fell unconscious and needed os- an oxygen mask, while two others needed CPR. Um, not a lot of details other than the, yeah, I I don't know what they're, how they're defining CPR. Um, they definitely don't talk about, you know, what we think of with chest compressions and rescue breathing and all of that. All we know is that some, um, apparently something looking like oxygen tanks were, were toted out and yeah, they wheeled out was administered to these folks who were not feeling well. Um, they continued on to Edinburgh where medical assistance was uh, requested and met the plane upon landing. Uh, the aircraft landed normally and the customers were met by medics for further treatment. So uh, I'm wondering, I did, I tried uh, you know, looking up to see if I could find any more information about this and there's nothing, nothing on aviation, Herald. nothing on aviation, Herald, nothing on, you know, anywhere uh, aviation uh, minded uh, news sites. And, um, yeah, I, I don't know. And we probably won't find out any more information about this. I'm very curious. But, but it was the flight from hell. Yes, it, it was. was. They say it several times. Yeah. I know. So yeah. I, have and you ever seen these big giant oxygen tanks being wheeled out like on dollies? 
Yeah. Yeah, and horror unfolded. So <laughs> what was going on? He, he was Is not out. Have That's one no. of those big oxygen tanks. tanks. Not even. About, Nick, not, when you were flying on the uh, A330, did you have large oxygen tanks in order to? That we have to huge win. ones. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, we, we needed a tractor to drag them up and down the aisles. <laughs> Oh, I think somebody is uh, having hallucinations or something. I, I, yeah, I don't really know what to make about this one. Um, but apparently it was. <laughs> I'm uh, a young guy. I fly all the time and I'm always fine. There was something seriously wrong with that flight. Folk <laughs> were worrying there wasn't enough oxygen. So hence the big oxygen tanks. Obviously, they were wheeling around. Right. Oh, well, he's very nervous about taking his next flight to Poland in three weeks and Madrid three oh, weeks I, again after that. I hope he never <laughs> flies again. It's going to be like this. Again. Yeah, I don't yeah. think he'll be able to fly. I, we recommend here at the ABG that he not fly again. Exactly. I mean, now I'll you know I'll try and keep an eye and see if uh, anything does eventually yeah. trickle out about this, but I don't think we're going to hear any additional details regarding this particular. Uh, instance. I, I wonder what uh, Sean would have said if they'd actually diverted the aircraft, because he said, I don't know why they didn't divert the plane to land sooner. Uh, and I wonder what his comment to the Daily Mail would have been had they done it, and he ended up being deposited in some obscure place somewhere weird. There would be more outrage, of course. More outrage, more yeah. horror, you know. It was Another so, flight from hell. Yeah. <laughs> it was so hellacious, we had to go to yes. Hellacious, what a great word. I it know. is. Great word. Abigail, thank you for sending that in. She says, I'm sure it's complete BS, but I couldn't resist sending it in. <laughs> I would love to hear all your opinions. I think you got her opinions. Yeah, you kind of got. Yeah, I think she sensed the same thing. <laughs> sure, her uh, antenna was yeah. raised there. Something wrong with we're, this We're article. also waving the flag with you. <laughs> complete BS flag. Anyway. All right. Thanks for sending that in, Abigail. Uh, next, Steph. Is, oh, my computer froze. Number seven. All right. Oh, Nick gets to take this one. Oh, this is from Lance. Flight paths in risky airspace. Uh, apparently, uh, he was on Twitter a few weeks ago when he saw the first reports of Iran shelling the U.S. base in Iraq. Uh, he immediately jumped on FlightAware to track the commercial flights in the area. An interesting thing to do. It took around 30 minutes before I noticed any deviations. Uh, the first was a BA flight from Dubai to London, uh, I think. It was a good way into Iraq airspace before it did a 180 and turned around uh, and flew back into the Persian Gulf and then proceeded into Saudi Arabia and airspace, then Egypt, Mediterranean, etc. Several other flights then soon started avoiding Iraq uh, stroke Iran airspace. Um, this was still pre-Ukrainian Airlines crash, which happened about an hour later. I'm not quite sure what that has got to do with it. Um, there's nothing new about a Ukrainian Airline crash that was relevant to this that I don't know? No, just the timing of everything that was occurring. Okay. All right. What I uh, noticed was Emirates and other Middle East carriers carried on their original tracks through the risky airspace. In fact, even today, I uh, look up flights from Dubai to London. You will see that BN Emirates fly two different flight paths for the route. I have the following questions. How do airlines monitor events happening all over the world in order to know when to react and avoid problem areas? Uh, I know dispatchers follow along flights for weather problems, etc., but do they also monitor news, social media, 
for this type of information. Well, the operations staff or the dispatching staff in the States uh, do keep an eye on what's going on, and uh, so they keep abreast of when something might be occurring. And uh, certainly in the United Kingdom, they would, if they have any suspicion that there might be airspace that will be having a problem that they haven't found out about through official channels, they will uh, get in touch with the UK government. Uh, and they are the uh, agency that keeps uh, an eye on what is occurring over various countries in the world. And they will advise the airline uh, of countries that they advise them that they suggest they don't fly over. So I suspect mainly because the government forces have usually they have the intelligence um, facilities to keep abreast of what's occurring. They're usually the first to know, although CNN are pretty quick. Um, and uh, they will often uh, then upgrade the security concerns about going over airspace. And then eventually, if it gets serious enough, they will uh, strongly advise uh, airlines not to fly over. But they will only do it to, so the UK government will do it for UK-based airlines. The American government will do it for American airlines. And, of course, the Middle East countries will do it for their airlines based in their countries. So if your country has decided that a piece of airspace is dangerous and advises you not to fly over, the airline will generally follow that advice and not fly over it. So hence, you get a different route from different countries uh, advising their airlines whether it's still safe or not. So uh, a measure of uh, the efficiency, perhaps, of the UK government was the fact that BA immediately stopped, in fact, turned around in one case, uh, and other airlines from other countries didn't. Um, question two, why would British Airways and uh, Emirates react differently? I think I've already covered that in my answer. Uh, three, have you experienced any similar non-weather-related situations? Well, personally, not war-related or not conflict-related, but more air traffic strike related. So, yes, yeah, sometimes an airspace will actually be close to you. You'll get up to the border and they'll say, uh, because we've got this problem in this airspace, you can't enter. Uh, and you're left with little option but to turn around um, and reroute if you can. In my case, it was a strike uh, over, oh, God, it was somewhere in Africa. And uh, we just, just needed to go into a holding pattern on the FIR boundary uh, until they decided to let us in. Uh, you know, we did a couple of turns around a hold, but it actually consumed a considerable amount of fuel because uh, when you're up at 35,000 feet, a holding pattern is pretty damn big. <laughs> um, so by the time we got all the way around and back again, uh, we used up about three tons of fuel. Um, and eventually we got in. But, uh, yeah, these things do happen. Um, and I don't know. You guys ever had a problem with conflicts in America that you'd not been allowed to fly for Texas or something one day? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Texas is usually a problem. Everyone going to Houston and DFW. Sorry. Yeah, they say if you're not part of the Lone Star State, get out of here. Very good. Uh, it's like a whole other country. Yeah. Right? Oh, yeah, I've heard that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, but uh, I, I think I hope I've answered uh, that. Yeah, you did. Great job. Um, Nick, I noticed in the back channel chat you were wondering about ARF and um, uh, my pronunciation. Yes, of the, I thought uh, it was a, a dog. Well, ARF, ARF. Yeah, here, let me try it again. Um, 
That's that's what I was talking about. Very good. Sounds like an A320 <laughs> with one engine shut down. <laughs> Air, rescue, and firefighting, I think. Uh-huh. Is that what it stands for? ARFF. Airport? You know, I, I, when I was – airport, thank you. Airport. Uh, when I was saying that, I'm thinking to myself, I should probably, you know, say the whole thing, but – I decided to shorten it up to ARF. As a wise professor of mine once said, acronyms are dangerous. Yes, they are. <laughs> Very wise. <laughs> okay, let's continue here. Um, should Is there another one that I should uh, go to? Yes, um, if we have time, number nine or direct to number 15. Okay, wow, 15. Liz, how much time do we actually have now? Nine. We have plenty. about five and a half minutes, I think, based on what I can see. Um, oh, this is a good one. This is from uh, Corey, an update on his aviation progress. And he says, uh, hey, APG crew, Corey Cave here again, nor- formerly known as Pilot Line Pilot Guy. Sorry, it's been ages since my last feedback, but it's been all for the best. Excuse me, but it has been. Let me try that again. Sorry, it has been ages since my last feedback, but it has all been for the best because I can officially call myself Captain Corey. Congratulations. Hey. Captain Corey, that's awesome. All right. Four rings. Past OE back in December have been loving the left seat ever since, although it's a bit of a change. I enjoy the challenge. In addition to this, I have since been offered to conduct pilot interviews for my airline and had my first session last week, and I'm in love with it. Definitely something that I am honored to be a part of. One of the interesting things that I've learned is that having a pilot there goes a long way in translating a question posed by our non-pilot HR staff to a candidate. You can see the expression on an individual's face when they are asked a question. And then I translate it into pilot talk. And the candidate gives me a, I don't know what that other guy was talking about. Look. Actually, our HR staff's knowledge about random aviation questions is quite impressive for individuals who are not pilots. All jokes aside, if any listeners in the U.S. are looking for assistance or tips on interviewing at an at a regional airline, feel free to give them my info. And so he said, feel free to give it to you all. His uh, email address is Corey Cave, C-O-R-E-Y-C-A-V-E 93 at gmail.com. So if you're out there looking for information uh, regarding um, interviews at regional airlines, you should uh, send him an email. We'll have this in the show notes as well. Uh, To my question, Captain Nick, Dana, and Jeff, what did you find the most challenging thing about moving to the left seat? Thanks again, Captain Corey. Nick. Getting into it without banging my head. (laughs) (laughs) That's so true, actually. Uh, I don't know why. The headroom over the captain's seat in my airplane was pretty uh, tight. Wouldn't it be the same on either side? No, you'd think so, wouldn't you? Once he was captain, his head was just bigger. That's that's the difference. (laughs) I should have remembered to take my hat off. Come on. Didn't well, I hit you, it on the on the head? Yours hasn't shrunk yet, I see. <laughs> Dana, what's your uh, what was the um most challenging thing about moving to the left seat? Learning how to 
manage the the flight deck. You know, you know what they say: ninety percent of the captain's job is the the brain work, and ten percent is only the uh, the flying part. As a first officer, ninety percent is the flying part, and only ten percent is the brain work. So, learning how to manage the operation, manage the, the you know, and and being a uh, uh, um not being a tyrant being being somebody you know kind of like you are jeff we you know i'm not trying to inflate your head at all but just really uh you know interact with everybody in a, in a positive way and and positive reinforcement and get to get the job done in in, yeah. in, a, in a in a very uh a good way that everybody respects you and and but yet doesn't want to step you know was doesn't want to step out of bounds you know doesn't want to step on you because you're 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 too uh too junior as a captain so it's it's kind of a fine line to 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 really walk. Yeah, Corey, my uh, the hardest part for me was uh, remembering to release the parking brake before you try to taxi. <laughs> I remember that story. That was Guys are no help at all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the poor guy. All right, so I I couldn't I couldn't remember to retract the, and, and extend the uh, the lights on the wing tips. I mean, that's my biggest real big problem. Uh, for me, it was flying left-handed with a stick, which I'd never done in my life before. Yeah. Probably didn't take long, though, to get used to it, right? Oh, me? Uh, yeah. No. Well, for most seconds. people. For for, <laughs> for above-average people. Four years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's so great to, to hear uh, your feedback, uh, Captain Corey, and uh, congratulations again for that. And we have so many so much more pieces of feedback that we wanted to cover, but Liz, as she always is, is so optimistic about how much we can do on the show and we always let her down. <laughs> so uh, that's going to be it for today's show. Uh, we're up against our three hour mark. Did you mark. want to do uh, 15? Yes, I did want to do 15. Oh, okay. Did you say? Sorry. <laughs> she did specifically request that we do, okay. do that one several times. Thank you very much. Uh, I, I just need guidance. I need all the I guidance try. that okay. I can get. That's okay. what we're here for, Jeff. Yeah, thanks. But before we go, we should probably do number 15 from Greg Peterson, uh, the uh, big-ass fan guy uh, holding some merch from his wonderful company. Uh, he sent in this, and he says, I see Captain Jeff's got a side gig. I realized I didn't put the video in context. It was a part of, of a promo, promo commercial for a new series on Fox called Duncanville. Okay, I don't know anything about this. And he gave a link to the show in the, uh, we'll put that in the show notes. So you really do need to watch the video to kind of really get the full effect of this. Um, I guess we can kind of describe it a bit. Some guy's having a dream, from what I can tell, of a, an airline pilot um, and the airline pilot is not in an airplane. He's just by himself, uh, spreading out his arms and flying along and somebody is on his back. And at some point his, his mustache goes from, I don't know, normal to extravagant. Uh, it's just, uh, obviously a lot of lift or something. It's that, a canard. I did, I did, uh, record a little bit of the audio of this video. So let me see if, I don't know if it's going to, if it's going to help or not. Quiet down in this small house. Enter the weirdest place on earth. The of the teenage world. Holy, is this really happening? No, well, hold on to my mustache. <laughs> 
hold on. hold on to my mustache. <laughs> Is this really happening? No, but hold on to my mustache. <laughs> I love it. Anyway, it doesn't really do it justice. You need to watch the little video clip that we'll have in the show notes. And um, I guess this guy kind of reminded Greg of me. I don't know. I don't, see the, watch the, I don't watch see the resemblance the at all. No, <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was a spitting image. That was brilliant. Yeah, so that's that is my little side gig. I don't really want to talk much more about it because you know, the fair enough. Non-disclosure. Mm-hmm. Um, Unless they change your name to Duncan. <laughs> anyway, so now may we go ahead and wrap up the show? Yes. Okay. We also had some more. Feedback from Greg Peterson um, regarding weather apps. We have boom operator Chris uh, with uh, something that he wanted to talk about. Um, Dave thanking me for for exposing myself, so to speak, um, and my ignorance of the way you pronounce the names of English towns and villages and such. And a, a really, really interesting story about um, an airport, um, Worcester, Worcester. Airport? Worcester. 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 Yeah. Um, And a lot more. Texas Charlie sent us some really nice feedback about a guy that wants to use a thing to, a plastic tent that you surround yourself with to protect yourself for the uh, coronavirus. Um, That and so much more. So if you want to send us uh, feedback, head over to airlinepilotguy.com. There's a, a way that you can do that on our contact us page. You can send us email uh, you can record something on a voice recording device and then attach it to an email we uh, have this um, thing called speak pipe that you can go to and record something for us if you'd like and um, let's see much much more on the website airlinepilotguy.com we're also on social media what i like to call the social meds Head over to twitter.com and search for us. We're at APG Crew. You can find all of us there and uh, information about when our live recordings will be taking place and our individual information pinned to the top of that page. You can also head over to facebook.com slash airline pilot guy and interact with our great community members there as well. Absolutely. And we also have this guy named Hillel who kind of follows me around everywhere that I'm going and he uh, tends to like to hang out in the um, in the restroom, the bathroom, the toilet. Toilet Yeah, again, after the show, Hillel, um, he's going to tell us all about Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share news and ideas, we suggest episode and plain tales topics, we plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha Charlie Kilo at airlinepilotguy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled Hotel India 11 Echo 1, and see you in Slack. Mind if I use your razor, Jeff? Kind of personal. All right. And uh, until next... Oh, big round of applause. Thank you very much to our oh, producer, Liz, Liz, in Toronto, who's waving thank at us. You. you just can't see her, but we can. Uh, thank you so much for all the hard work that you do, Liz. And thanks to everyone in our live chat room. Uh, remember to follow us on 
all the social meds uh, for the announcements for when we're doing the show because I think you really, really enjoy hanging out with these other people, like-minded people uh, while we do the live sufferers. recording of the show. The, yeah, like-minded sufferers. And until next time, wishing you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care and God bless. Cheers, y'all. Ta-ta for now. Bye-bye, y'all. Good day. I used to be such a good, good pilot. Till I started APG I opened doors for little old ladies I helped them to their seats Airline pilot guy I fly America oh, Airline pilot guy He can't land in heavy fall oh, I got no friends cause I'm always flying I just don't have the time But I can land this old plane I can land it just fine Airline, how do you die?